Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed. Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it. Hello, simpletons. You're listening to the Minimalist Private Podcast, where we discuss what it means to live a meaningful life with less. My name is Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And together, we are the Minimalists. Oh, we're here with Malabama. Hi, everybody. And guess who's back, ladies and gentlemen, TK <laughs> Coleman. Yeah. Bringing the guess. spirit of Christmas back. <laughs> <laughs> it's February. <laughs> Christmas lives in our hearts, my man. <laughs> Where we are, Christmas is. Oh, I love it. Oh, I love it. TK was in uh, Detroit last week. Speaking of some schools, how was that whole experience for you? Oh, man, it was phenomenal. Cornerstone Education Group spoke to one high school and a few different middle schools. And, uh, man, it was just so encouraging to be able to... Um, to work with with young people in the inner city and talk about entrepreneurship, talk about economic literacy and all of those things. Uh, it's funny because on one end, you can totally see why some people look at the people that are in these communities and say they have no chance. Mm. But then when you look at some of the teachers that are dedicated to working with them, when you see the hunger and you actually get, you like create a space where it's safe for them to talk about their dreams, you see so many signs of life, man. And mm. I want to go back. I want to go back and keep working with them, man. That's that, where my heart is. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Is there anything um, that stands out to you like that you get a consistent question on or uh, I, I don't know, like from, from all those kids, like is there any common themes that you see? Well, one of the interesting things is that, you know, um, so many people know what interests them and what makes them come alive viscerally, but they've built up and accumulated so much baggage around being able to talk about it, being able to think about it, because we live in a world that like reduces our passions and our interests to like these mathematical equations to figure out. Mm. And so helping children get back into their bodies, helping them take the, the head and descend into the heart and feel again, feel what makes them curious again, feel what makes them excited again, and teach them to not be ashamed of it and create an environment where they feel at home talking about it. Uh, to me, that was one of the most noticeable things, how much that is needed mm. and how much they're receptive to efforts that are made to do it in a way that's gentle, generous, empathetic, and so on. I think this is one of the problems with the public school system mm. in general or education, not education really, but schooling, right? Because there are many ways to educate yourself. You can read a book, you can take an online course, you can shadow someone, observe an entrepreneur yep. for a day. Those are all forms of education. Quite often with schooling, what we are taught is to search for answers that yeah. shut down curiosity. Mm. Yeah. But curiosity is different from that. When we really get curious, it's because the answer we get is actually a new question. Or when we get an answer about something, it opens up a dozen other questions. And then those questions lead to other questions. Mm. It's not about shutting down by getting an answer. We don't it's not about knowing everything even. Yeah. It's about understanding that the more we understand, the more questions show up. And I see this mm. in my own life or in my daughter's life all the time. You see with little kids, it's constant. Why? 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 And you give them the answer why, and that leads to three more whys. 
But for whatever reason, through the educational system, the schooling system, or just through society and culture, we've been acculturated to seek answers that shut down curiosity. Mm. What is the Mm. definitive answer? What does the science say? Well, the science says one thing, but if we're taught to be curious, it may give you an answer that leads you to several more questions. That's right. One of the challenges inherent in compulsory approaches to education is that we kill curiosity at the outset by saying something other than what you're curious about is going to serve as the context for how we teach you about the world, right? So humans are motivated to learn when they can start with what they naturally gravitate towards. And we can take what you're naturally interested in and say, all right, let's connect that to to other things that we believe are important. And if we can't establish the connection, then we haven't passed the test. We haven't earned our right to say we are teaching you with love, right? Because if we think it's important for you to learn how to count money, if we think it's important for you to understand what a budget is, then we ought to be able to connect that to what you're interested in. So if all you care about is basketball, then it's not my job to say, stop thinking about basketball. Let's focus on budgets because that's the important stuff. It's my job to say, all right, I'm going to earn your trust by showing you why you might be interested in understanding budgets if basketball is a real goal for you. And in fact, uh, it's funny because there was one experience where there's a student who right away, like as soon as I start talking, he leans back and slouches in the most obvious way, almost as if it would have been a massive failure if no one had noticed, right? Mm. There's what I call the relaxed slouch Mm. where you're truly enjoying yourself. And then there's the unrelaxed slouch where you're not even having fun with that slouch, but it's a signal to the other person that I don't have to listen to you. Mm. And you could see the tension and you could see like the, the desire for the adults in the room to say, hey, you need to be more respectful. And my MO towards that was let him slouch. Mm. Don't antagonize him for slouching because you know what? He doesn't want to be here. Yeah. And yeah. as adults, we have places we don't want to be, but we have the power to choose. Someone in this young man's life has the power to make him be in spaces that he doesn't want to be in. And since the psyche is not designed to just carry the baggage of powerlessness, well, we've got to compensate somehow. And his freedom to slouch was the only agency that he had. Mm. He's somewhere that he doesn't want to be, listening to something that he doesn't want to hear. That's agency. And education starts with acknowledging agency, affirming agency, not antagonizing it. And so I didn't say, hey, young man, sit up straight. I said, there's no way I'm going to solve whatever is underneath all of this Mm. in the next 30 minutes. (laughs) Okay. Mm. Maybe you're about to have the best nap you ever had. (laughs) And maybe I have a chance to win your trust by allowing you to have the self-respect in this moment that you need. It's probably hard enough on you Mm. that someone else is lording over you, making you be somewhere that you don't want to be. And I think that's the kind of compassion that we need to bring, not only to the classroom, but to just education in general. And that's what's going to help us expand people's understanding of education in a way that transcends school. Mm. Well, you heard it here. Let them slouch. (laughs) (laughs) You know, Ryan, when you and I go, and we've spoken a lot of colleges a few other schools as well. Mm -hmm. But when we speak at these schools, the 
burden of proof is much higher there than say we're going to one of our live events. Like if we're at a Sunday symposium and we're speaking or we're on a tour stop for a book tour, a film that we've put out, we've done 10 tours over the last dozen years. The people are there to see the minimalists. They, they want to engage with whatever is there. We go speak to a college sometimes. It's like, mm-hmm. They're forced to be here. They have to be here. We, yeah. they've, their agency has either been removed or at least their perception mm-hmm. is that their agency has been removed. Mm-hmm. I have to be here for extra credit or whatever it might be. And one of the most rewarding things is you see the people slouching or not paying attention or yeah. texting or whatever. Very overtly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's, it's making a sort of statement. Yeah. But then there's a counter statement that is accidentally made by many of them. Well, I'll notice five minutes in, 10 minutes in or sometimes 15 minutes into an hour long talk that Ryan and I will give these light bulbs seem to be going off over their heads. It's you like, see it in their expression. Their That's head right. will tilt. Like I, it's like they're sitting there listening and they're like, Oh, like you could tell like, Oh, okay. Like we're hitting on something that um, is meaningful to them. It's like, you're, you're describing me or the future me. If I continue to go down this path, like my parents told me I should major in this particular degree, I should become a doctor or an attorney, or I should become an accountant. And so I'm going down this path, but it's not a path of purpose. In fact, it's a path with a bunch of answers. We were talking about answers a moment ago, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. The problem isn't a lack of answers most of the time. In fact, where we get our most joy, the most fun, where we feel the most alive is not in getting the answer, it's in searching. And think about when you really enjoy a TV show, whether it is CSI Miami or True Detective or The Wire or whatever it might be, especially if it's some sort of mystery. Mm. The writer, the director, and usually the actors all know what's going to unfold. But what makes it enjoyable as a viewer Mm. is that Mm. I don't know. I'm looking for the why that's hidden behind the curtain that they have created. That's right. And if you just give me the answer, well, actually, here's who did the murder, (laughs) right? Show Here's when it happened. (laughs) Right. In fact, I remember the very first book I started writing. It was a book called Just Past Central. It took place in Cincinnati, Ohio uh, at the week of the riots in 2001. And the opening scene, the main character dies in the first sentence Mm. of the book. And... At the time, I wasn't a very experienced writer, and I could never get past like 70 pages of this thing. I kept rewriting and rewriting because I gave away the whole thing, mm. and I couldn't get... Now, maybe now I'd be able to go back and, and um, play around with that in a way that still kept the iceberg mostly concealed under the waters or the veil, this is to mix my metaphors here. <laughs> but what you realize is that you enjoy a show or you enjoy a new conversation with someone, not because they show up with all the answers, but because they show up in a disposition that causes you to ask more questions. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that is great. That, by the way, is what relationship and trust is all about. That's the power of shifting from a transactional paradigm of teaching to a relationship-building paradigm of teaching. You can make someone sit up straight, You can make someone look forward. You can make someone stop talking. But what you can't make someone do is open up their hearts and open up their minds and say, I give you permission Mm. to be my educator. 
Mm. I give you permission to lead me. I give you the permission to tell me a story. You can't do that. There's a little anecdote of a man who once told his son, he says, hey, son, sit down. His son is just being really rowdy. And he says, I said, sit down. Son keeps moving up. And uh, and so the father stands up and moves towards the son menacingly. And the son gets scared and he sits down. And then the father looks satisfied. And then when the son sits down, he says, but I'm still standing up on the inside. Mm. You can make someone sit down, mm. but you can't control the inner disposition. The inner disposition has to be one with empathy, with patience, with understanding, with the disposition that walks into a classroom and says, I'm not just someone who thinks he knows something that you don't know, but I'm someone that actually likes you. I'm not mad at y'all. I'm not mad at y'all for having the resistance that you have. I want you to win. And I'm going to teach from that state. I'm going to deal with you and your difficulties from that state. Mm. I have a difficulty with Ella right now because we homeschool slash unschool her. But there are a few things that we help her with that are sort of traditional learning devices, reading and math in particular, right? Mm -hmm. So that she can function within society, having these basic fundamentals. And she absolutely hates sitting down and doing her writing, reading, and math each night. Mm -hmm. And I get fed up with it too, because I'm like, just sit down, shut up and do the work. I don't say that to her, but that is the feeling. That's the feeling. And I'm sure it comes across that way because she, I mean, she throws a fit where, oh, I hate, I mean, she, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) And she actually does the sprawling thing and everything else. And, um, I haven't I haven't come to a detente with that yet because what'll happen is I'm like, hey, if you want to go back to traditional school, they'll make you do this eight hours a day. Mm. But I know that's not compelling to her, right? And so what you've what you've just sparked in me is I need to do a better job personally showing her why these things apply to her everyday life. Mm. There's a great story, Ryan. I think I told you about this kid who was going to her unschool who was illiterate at age 12. Oh, wow. Completely illiterate. But then he met a German girl online. (laughs) Oh, man. Within two weeks. There you go. He could read and write English within two weeks. Now, why? Because he had the most compelling reason. I can't interact with this equally pubescent human. Yeah. And therefore, I'm going to miss out on this opportunity. And once he saw the benefits, it's why when we talk about minimalism, it's how might your life be better with less? Mm -hmm. The question here then is how might your life be better with reading or with arithmetic? How might your life be better? And if you're able to show that, then it becomes compelling. And they may not run in that direction like this 12-year-old did, but they may start venturing in that direction, certainly won't push it off or be as resistant to it as yeah. Ella is with her reading. Man. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Two weeks. Yeah. Wow. It's funny because sometimes we say, this is important, math, reading, whatever it may be. But then we betray that belief by treating these subjects as if a child can only be motivated to learn them if we use coercion mm. versus using creativity versus appealing to their curiosity. But if you think about it, if reading is truly important, then what that must mean is that at some point in that child's life, they're going to have something that they need or want, and they won't be able to obtain it 
without the ability to read. Now, if that's not true, then it's not as important as we thought it would be. What that really means is they can have a perfectly healthy, happy life without knowing how to read. But for those of us who believe that reading is important, and I do believe that literacy is important, Mm -hmm. it means that they're going to get to a point where there are things they want and they need, and they're not able to procure them without that literacy. And so you can start there. I remember one of my cousins looking at my book collection and saying, man, you really love to read and I hate reading. And I says, no, you hate my book collection. Mm. When you look at my books, it's making you feel a certain way. And that's exactly how I look at other people's book collections, Mm. right? We each need our own. I says, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you to a bookstore and we're going to look around. And when we did, we spent like an hour and a half in a Barnes and Nobles and she had like a stack of books. I'm like, I'm going to get you whatever you want. But What if you take a child to a library? Because the most important part of a reading assignment isn't the reading and the questions they need to answer. The most important part is picking the book. And we pick the books for them. And so children are deprived of the opportunity to learn how to identify the books that make their hearts sing. Mm. What if we took them to the library and said, run around. I'm curious to see what you pick up without any influence from me. And, 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 and we can sort of play the role of protector and nurturer who keeps them. Hopefully you won't have these kinds of books in the library anyway, from picking up things that might harm themselves. But ultimately you see what they gravitate towards and you use that as the basis for teaching them the thing that you think is important. In a certain way, we are, we are salespeople for ideas. If these ideas are important, we want to sell them on the importance of the ideas by appealing to what they're already naturally curious about. Children don't have to be taught how to be curious. We simply need to understand the curiosity that already exists and use that as a bridge for further learning. Nurture it rather than stifle it. Mm. For most people, school stifles it. I don't think this is limited to children, though. I mean, this happens yeah. with us adults, and one might even argue it happens more with adults, right? Mm. Because we are taught that we need to stay in our lane or I'm going to offend someone. And Mm. now we have the ability. In fact, later on the episode, we offended a lot of hoarders, apparently. Mm. And um, we'll talk about that in, in the episode during the Talk Aboutable segment because what happens is when we start to have that fear that shuts down the creativity, the curiosity, the the asking questions that entertain us, that bring us joy, that bring the joy out of us, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it starts in childhood. That's right. And then it metastasizes throughout the rest of our lives. Yeah. Welcome back, TK Coleman. Yeah, man. Hey, man, it's yes. good to be back, y'all. It's good to have Love you back, y'all. Man. We got the yeah. rest of our team here. Jordan No More is here. By the way, congratulations to Jordan. He just had... His first film accepted into his first film festival. He got his first laurel recently. Congrats to him. Nice. Yeah. Yes. Good work, man. It's called The Forger. You can follow him on Instagram. Just check the show notes or it's at Jordan No More. That's K-N-O-W because he knows more than you do. (laughs) Boy, there's two O's and more, right? Because he needed more vowels. (laughs) (laughs) Jordan Moore Fowles. We got <laughs> Professor Sean here as well. We got Danny Unknown. The rest of our team is watching remotely. Podcast Sean. Post-production Peter. Social Justice still out on maternity leave. Let's give her our well wishes as well. Let's start with our callers, y'all. If you have a question or comment for our podcast, give us a call, 406-219-7839, or preferably email a voice memo. You get that crystal clear voice memo quality. Just email that to podcast at theminimalists.com. Let us know if you're a private podcast subscriber so we can 
prioritize your message. Our first question today is from Kat. My name is Kat. I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. I am a pretty new follower of The Minimalists, and I was getting so much value out of the public podcast that I decided to become a private podcast member. I am 31, and the house that I've been renting, I moved in when I was 22, so I've lived there for almost a decade, um, which is, I realize, kind of rare for someone my age. I know most of my friends and family have moved around a lot, but I really have loved being kind of steady and stable where I am. Um, The thing is, is my place has been so comforting and so safe, um, you know, and has been such a a sanctuary for me throughout my 20s. Um, And, you know, my landlord lives in the other half of the duplex and he's been great. He, you know, makes sure I'm safe. He takes care of things when they're broken. Um, I'm actually like really close with his family. I babysit his daughter sometimes um, and he deducts it from my rent. And so I've just developed such an attachment to this place that I've been living in for almost a decade, um, almost a third of my life, um, that it's hard for me to let go of it. Um, And I am ready for a change. I'm ready to move to a different city about an hour away Um, I want to be closer to my partner. I want to hopefully own a home. That's kind of the goal. Um, Although there's a possibility I may have to rent for a little while longer before I can buy. Um, But yeah, the idea of changing and I'm really attached to my place, like my physical house, the idea of somebody else living in it. It's like, you know, no, this Mm. is my house. Like I have three cats that I've become, you know, like, Obviously, they'll come with me, but like this has been their home too, and they're basically my children. And I just, I'm having a really hard time letting go, and I'm ready to move. I'm ready to move on. And I used to think that the problem was like all the stuff I had accumulated was the main reason I was anxious about moving. But as I've, you know, started to follow you all, and started to declutter, I started to realize that it's not so much the stuff, like getting rid of stuff has been really easy. It's actually detaching and letting go of the place, the physical place I'm in. And also just like the uncertainty of what if this new, wherever I end up is not as safe or secure, or, you know, if I end up having to rent, what if I have a landlord that's not as accommodating and not as, you know, present and attentive and and safe um, or treats me like family, you know, or what if, you know, I can't buy, so I have to do that. And, you know, I just think of all these what ifs. And, but I also think about the fact that like, I'm ready for a change. I'm ready for something new. Um, I work remotely. So like moving is not really going to affect my work life very much. So I just was hoping for some guidance and anything that might help me make this transition and let go of my home Mm. and move to a new one. Kat, I'm going to tell you something I think you already know. Letting go is difficult, but clinging creates more difficulties. Mm. Now, you probably recognize that with your stuff. And she even said, like, I had an easier time getting rid of the stuff. Of course, you did in the rear view. It's always easy that now that that's in the past, but in the moment, I'm sure there were some things that were relatively easy to let go of and some things where it's like, oh, I know I have an attachment, an irrational attachment to this thing, but 
I'm having trouble letting it go. And eventually, something changed. The thing didn't change. You didn't change. But the story you were telling yourself about the thing changed. If I get rid of this, I'll free up more space. Or, huh, maybe I don't actually use this as much as I thought I did. Or, you know what? I was holding on to this just in case, but I've had it for three years and I haven't used it in the last two and a half years. And I'm going to give myself permission to let go because letting go means what? Well, only you get to decide what that what is. What are the benefits for you? Right now, you can't see the benefits of moving outweighing the benefits of staying for you. Well, why is that? Because of the fear of the unknown. But of course, every fear Mm. is the fear of the unknown. Mm. There's really no fear of the known because even if you have a fear of the known, there's some unknown behind that known. And so every fear that you are experiencing is a fear of the unknown. And so that's what terrifies you now. What terrifies people when they're letting go of the stuff. What if, what if, those two words came up again and again and again. Mm -hmm. What if this happens? What if that happens? Yes, a million hypothetical things can happen. There's no reason to be worried about those things. You can bring up legitimate concerns that might steer you in the correct direction, but you can bring up a million what ifs that will merely paralyze you because you'll be paralyzed by fear. TK, what are your thoughts? Yeah. To build on that, the question is not, will you let go? The question is, what will you let go? Mm. Because either you'll let go of what's holding you back or by refusing to let that go, you'll let go of the life of possibility that's calling you forward. And that's the problem with clinging. When you cling to the stuff that's weighing you down, you compromise the stuff that makes you come alive. Mm. And I would ask, what is the vision that makes me come alive? What is it that compels me, not from a place of necessity, not from a place of familiarity, but what is it that compels me in the sense that it beckons me to a life of adventure? It summons me to bring forth what is within me. It drives me to be who I know I was born to be. I'll tell you, when we left Charleston, it was incredibly difficult. Most people, in fact, hardly anyone even asked about it because they just assume that since we lived in California before, we're like so much happier about mm. the geography now. But over the four years of living there, we fell in love with it, man. Mm. We fell in love with our place and our neighborhood and our community and so on. And I genuinely felt like the place we lived is a place I could retire Mm. I could live there for the rest of my life and be happy. And I think my wife would agree with me. We didn't leave because we were unhappy with where we were. We left because there is the passion and the curiosity towards something that is unknown. And you know what's funny? Speaking from the other side, I can honestly say without any sense of loss, I like the place that we lived in much better than the place we live in now. And the place we live in now, I'm grateful for it but I like the place we live in better. I think it looked nicer. I think it felt nicer. I like the old neighborhood. I'm grateful for where we are now. And even then I can say a life of freedom from regret is possible even when you still like some of the things you left behind a little bit more than some of the things you move forward to. Because it's not about the place that you lived or the neighborhood you lived in or the neighbors that you had alone. It's also about 
the possibilities that you want it to call forth from your own soul. And if you just compare a familiar place that you know works for you with a complete unknown, mm. right? When it comes to that unknown, you're going to be able to think about every possible problem, a, a possible landlord that you might not like. And there's no way you can prove that that's not going to happen, right? A possible neighbor that you might not like. There's no way you can prove that that won't happen. And you have all of those things known in your current situation. So the unknown is almost always going to lose. But let's just assume that this place you're living is the nicest place you're ever going to be. And you're going to like the new place and the new landlord and the new neighbor a little bit less. Is that what you're living your life for? Mm. Are you living your life to make sure that you avoid ever having a neighbor that's not perfect or a landlord that's not perfect? If that's all your life is about, by all means, stay. But is there anything more? Is there something that you want to bring forth from your soul that might be worth risking a neighbor that you don't know. I want you to have the best neighbors in the world. I want you to have the best landlord if that's what you're going to have. But at the end of the day, life is about who you want to be. It's about how you want to show up. It's about what you want to explore. It's about the adventure that you want to create. And I wouldn't let having all of my my questions answered about the place I'm currently in hold me back from getting those questions that are still burning in my heart answered. You got to get those questions answered because if you don't, that's what regret is. Mm. Man, breaking up is hard. I mean, I'll tell you what, I I think about relationships in my life and even when they were pernicious and I knew they weren't good, I was still clinging and it took me, took me a while to to let go. This is, this is the opposite because she doesn't want to leave. She likes where she's at. This isn't a pernicious place. Right, right. So I agree with you, TK, about getting clear on what her vision is. Like, it's always okay to run away from something as long as you know what you're running towards. And, and that analogy doesn't quite fit here because she's not running away from this. Mm-hmm. She's she's moving on to bigger and better potential uh, possibilities. That what if, Milburn, it makes me think of the essay uh, that we have on our website about, you know, what's the best that can happen. Mm-hmm. And all those what ifs, we just put all these negative scenarios in yeah. and we start to get, you know, make ourselves scared and paranoid and we don't ever consider What's, what's actually the best thing that could happen? Yeah, what if I really enjoy this 300% more? We don't ask that question. Mm-hmm. It's just, what if my landlord isn't kind to me? Right, right? Yeah. 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 And part of that is what we're focusing on, right? Absolutely. You often hear me talk about yeah. my neighbors on both sides who are awesome. Uh, literally on the left side of me, it's like, these peacenik hippies who are amazing, wonderful people. And then we have like some conservative Christians on the right side of me. Uh, and these people get along so well with each other. It's beautiful. And then across the street from us, we have what might be considered a dysfunctional family. Mm. Probably not as dysfunctional as the family Ryan or I grew up in. <laughs> yeah. But I don't focus on what's going on over there, even though the police will show up occasionally and and there's yelling from time to time or the one of the boyfriends comes by and they're in the street getting into arguments. Oh, wow. I don't focus on that as much because I know that I have these other things. What yeah. if my neighbors here and here are awesome? Or what if the neighbors across the street? Because here's the truth. It doesn't really affect me either way. What does affect me is the story I tell myself about it. And I like what you're saying here, Ryan. It's not even a breakup with the place. It's She's graduating. Yeah. And so, Kat, you're graduating from this apartment. Mm-hmm. And it's beautiful. I remember the, remember the last, or the second to last place I lived in Dayton, the beautiful loft space. Oh, right? man. That was great. I just saw a picture of it yesterday for the video. Jordan, I'm going to send you this picture of me and Ryan 
in my, they'll put it right here above my left shoulder. Me and Ryan, we were 29 years old, December of 2010. We were getting ready to start. We were 10 days away from starting the minimalists.com. We had been planning it for a few months. And there was a photo of us in my apartment together. And it's my favorite place I've ever lived. It's It's still to this day, still my favorite place. Yeah. Yeah. And it was $900 a month. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) This massive, beautiful loft, downtown Dayton, Ohio. And yet I left there. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One is getting out of debt was really compelling to me. Leaving the corporate world was compelling to me. And so I couldn't even afford the 900 bucks a month. So mm. I found an apartment that was 500 bucks a month in Dayton. And then eventually Ryan and I left Dayton to go explore more. And I really enjoyed the last apartment I lived in Dayton. Mm. And that was wonderful. Then we moved to this cabin on the side of a mountain in the middle of nowhere. It wasn't our intent to stay there for very long. We were there for like five months. Yeah. And then we were gone. We went to the next place. It was about moving forward was much more compelling to me than holding on to this place. And I think that's the problem with nostalgia. Mm. Nostalgia becomes a 2D rose-colored rear view. Yes. Everything was perfect and beautiful in that apartment, in that lot, whatever it was. That's the story I tell myself. Yeah. But I could tell myself that same story about what's coming next. Yeah. That nostalgia keeps us stuck. In a lot of ways, like my favorite place that I ever lived in was the one uh, that Mariah and I lived in right before we left Missoula, mm-hmm. that like studio loft. Mm-hmm. It was had nice big windows, mountains, stunning views, stunning yeah, yeah. views. I mean, absolutely stunning views. And um, I think about that place a lot. And yeah. I'm, I, I, I don't know if I I mean, I definitely miss it, but I don't dwell on missing that place. Mm. And sometimes I look back, I'm like, oh, maybe I should have subletted it and at least had an opportunity to move back in there. But, you know, I know that for me and Mariah to move on from that place, like there's so much more for us out there, Um, especially, you know, here in LA, like there's so much more that I'm willing to kind of let go of of the, the, the love or the really really strong like mm. that I had for that place. So yeah, yeah. Kat, um, it's all about that perspective. What, what are you, um, what are you going to obtain or what do you have the chance of obtaining by moving away from this place? And that is, um, yeah, that's what I would say focus on. One, one quick closing comment for me for Kat is trust yourself. I think one of the dangers of looking at a situation like it's the best that you'll ever do is that it overlooks the magic of you that brought all of those things together and even made that experience possible. Mm -hmm. You don't have a good landlord independently of the kind of person that you are and the way in which you impacted that landlord. You think that landlord allows you to babysit their kids independently of who you are and how you show up? That says something about the magic of you. And so many times we find ourselves in these awesome spaces, experiencing these awesome things. And we think this is the best that it's ever going to be completely overlooking, completely discounting the fact that it's so awesome right now because of the kind of person that we are. When you move on, you can recreate the magic that uniquely comes from you in other places too. Mm -hmm. Never doubt your ability to create magic in places that are different from where you've already been. Mm. And that magic is often far more compelling than what she said with being steady. Like, I understand you want some level of certainty. 
But the certainty doesn't come from your home alone. Yeah. By the way, that kind of certainty is also a misnomer because the person who owns the apartment you're in right now could decide to sell the building, yeah. jack up the rent so that's not affordable. Yeah. They could say they want a different tenant because they have a family member who's sick and they need to take care of them. Yeah. These are a bunch of what ifs you could tell yourself about your current place. Well, I don't think those are empowering what ifs, yeah. but you see your place, as you said, as a sanctuary. And Kat, the cool thing about a sanctuary is there isn't just one sanctuary. You can find the things that make your current home your sanctuary, and you can tweeze those out, and you can carry that with you. It could be physical things. It could be something about the time and location. It could be the proximity to the places you want to go in your neighborhood. But whatever makes your home your sanctuary, you can recreate that. It's just like, TK, when you moved here and you started, you found a new church, it was like, well, I, I can only go to the one back in Charleston. That didn't make any, that wouldn't make any sense. You would feel yeah. discontent around that. Mm. But you said, well, I can find a new one. Yeah. And maybe I'll like it more. Maybe I'll like it less. That comparison isn't really helpful either. Yep. What is helpful is understanding that limiting mindset of the sanctuary is only here where I'm living. And you can let go of that. Mm. The story that, I was telling a moment ago, and Ryan and I were just talking about, we wrote about in our book, Everything That Remains. And so, Kat, I'd love to send you a copy of Everything That Remains because what I just told you was sort of an attenuated version of letting go of place, letting go of the, the, the chains of that particular place because it was really comforting. They were gold-plated chains, mm. handcuffs <laughs> yeah. that I was attached to, right? And as soon as I feel that attachment so deep that I feel like I need to cling to this thing, that is a sign for me to loosen my grip. And if once I loosen my grip, that's often a sign that it's okay to let go because in order to move on, I'm going to have to let go. So mm -hmm. Kat, if you enjoy our podcast, I think you'll enjoy the audiobook version of Everything That Remains. Or if you want the book book or the ebook version, Malabama will send one of those to you yeah. as well. I just want to say, Kat, thank you so much for being a patron. That's awesome. I'm so glad we had that much value to your life. Our next question is from Adam. Hello, this is Adam from Los Angeles. I recently got diagnosed with adult ADHD and looking back at my 40 years of life, it makes sense. My life has been a series of phases and hobbies. I learn about something new, get excited about it. I dive in headfirst, spend a few weeks having fun learning the basics, but as soon as the learning curve slows and it requires some dedication, I lose interest and move on to the next thing. You talk about minimizing your hobbies and learning something deeply, but what should I do when I have ADHD and get bored with things very quickly? I would love to be able to focus on a singular hobby for an extended period and achieve the deep, fulfilling learning you talk about, but I've never been able to put it into practice. I'm interested in countless things, but apparently passionate about nothing. TK, I want to talk to you about passion mm. because we often think that passion is pre-existing mm -hmm. and we just need to discover that pre-existing passion. Yeah. But it seems to me that passion is not pre-existing. You weren't born to be an astronaut or a yoga instructor or mm -hmm. a teacher yeah. or a principal or a corrections officer. I suppose you could be passionate about any of those things. Mm -hmm. My question, passion on the correction officer side of things. Uh, I'd be skeptical, skeptical of anyone who was passionate about being a corrections officer anyway. Yeah, like, what, what's the why behind that? Right. But set that aside, passion isn't discovered, it's 
cultivated. Mm-hmm. That's right. And, and even with something like passionate about being a corrections officer, notice how we're conflating categories here. Corrections officer is a job. It's a particular occupation, one that requires a variety of traits, one that involves a variety of tasks. And the person that appears to be passionate about that, it's not like that person couldn't be happy in a world where that job didn't exist because they could still embody and express those traits they could still do related tasks, right? And so passion is something that's separate from knowledge of how to monetize it or Mm. the ability to identify what I major in when I go to school or the ability to find a job. Passion is more what makes me come alive, what makes me feel fired up and so on. But to your point, you're absolutely right. Passion isn't this thing where it's like, hey, no matter what age you are, seven, 17, 77, as long as you have the proper tools of introspection, you can go within your soul and figure out the riddle of what's the one thing that I will ever enjoy doing, right? Like, no, that's not how passion works. In fact, many people find themselves being passionate about things that they never thought they would be passionate about by doing them developing a unique, interesting relationship to doing those things, finding out how much of a positive impact they were having on others. And then in retrospect, they look back, the dots connect, and they say, I'm passionate about that thing. But I didn't discover that passion. I manufactured that passion. Much of what we call meaning is something that's manufactured. Mm. If I can say more. (laughs) (laughs) With respect to this question, One thing I would say, and I I, I talk to my students about this a lot, I say, forget about your passion and follow your curiosity. If you know what you want to go deep with, by all means, give yourself permission to immerse yourself in that. But if you don't know the answer to that, it's totally okay to start with what seems appealing, attractive, or interesting to you, and then to explore that, to experiment with that. It's similar to dating. If you know you want to get married someday, that's okay. However, you don't need to know who you're going to marry today. How do you get that knowledge? Not by figuring it out intellectually, but by giving yourself the permission to what? Get to know people. Mm. You find people that seem interesting to you. Just because someone is attractive to you, does that mean they make a good spouse? No, Mm. but you don't need to know the answer to that yet. Give yourself permission to flirt first. Give yourself permission to say, hey, this person seems cool. Want to go out on a date? Want to go for a walk? Want to go have a cup of coffee? Whatever it may be. And then do you like that experience? Do you want more of it? All right, keep moving in that direction. Do you not like that experience? Did you get enough? Is that too much already? Okay, no more movement in that direction. And it's similar. So when it comes to these hobbies that you've tried and you say you you dive in and and you learn a lot of stuff and then there comes this point where you're bored with it, that might not be a character flaw. We live in this world that says, oh no, you're supposed to muster the discipline to go deep. For who? Yeah. Why? Mm. Just to prove that you're disciplined? It may be the case that your interest level in those things was fully satiated by the level of involvement that you've had. And now it's time to move on to other things. And you know what? Your ability to enjoy other things, your ability to go far with those other things benefits from the interdisciplinary knowledge you bring to the table as a result of those eclectic experiments with curiosity that you conducted. So I wouldn't pick something to go deep on just because it's something to go deep on. I would continue to be loyal to my curiosity. And one of the things I would do is I would ask myself, are there any common threads or patterns that connect one curiosity to another? Because Mm -hmm. I tell you, there are a lot of students, there are a lot of adults 
who seem like they're all over the place because from the outside looking in, it's like, oh man, one day this guy's into Buddhism and then the next day this guy's into coding and then the next day he's into that. And it's like, Mm -hmm. well, has anybody stopped to say, why was Buddhism interesting to you in the first place? Why was coding interesting to you in the first place? Because there might be these patterns that began to emerge. There might be these common themes and we might discover something fascinating about this person's ability to identify patterns that connect things that other people might not notice. There's an element of you that's present in all of these things that you explore. And instead of condemning yourself for jumping to one thing, to the next thing, after it ceases to be interesting to you, I would stop and ask myself, what do each of these things I've been interested in say about me and my unique vision of the world? Because there are people who are not interested in what you're interested in. Your interests say something about you. What is that? Yeah. I, I, what I hear you say is date different passions. Mm-hmm. Go on these dates. I mean, because that's a great analogy. Like you you uh, go on a first date with with someone that could potentially be, you know, your, your life partner. Um, if you like them, you go on the second date. And if you like the second date, you go on the third date. And there's always going to be some rough patches. There's always going to be some disagreements. There's going to be something that you're eventually going to have to work past. That's right. The question is, is like, are you willing to work past it with that particular person? And I would say it's the same thing with the passion. Like, I don't want Adam to be disempowered here because he has ADHD. I have ADHD as well. I mean, it is like to sit down and do emails is painful. Mm-hmm. Like just to like go, go through them. It's like two emails and then I'm like, oh, I, I got to rinse this cup out. And then another two emails and oh, I got to like wipe this up. Um, cleaning is like my uh, distraction from like what I actually yeah. need to do. So if, if I catch myself clean, I'm like, wait a minute, what am I supposed to be doing right now? So. So, you know, uh, I have ADHD as well. Um, I don't want you to use that, Adam, as an excuse to not cultivate different passions. Yes, it's going to be difficult uh, because it's a little bit more difficult for someone with ADHD to stay focused and to keep that um, to keep that that high. It really is like when you get into something, you get that good feeling, you get those endorphins. And if you rely on those endorphins to keep you um, pursuing a passion, then I think ADHD or no ADHD, I don't think you're ever going to fully commit to something. So, um, you know, all that to say is, is yes, it gets boring sometimes. Yep. And it gets banal Mm. and we want to give up and we want to throw our hands up. And uh, we've really got to be honest with ourselves and say, am I just avoiding boredom right now? Or am I really not passionate about this particular thing? And it's okay to not be passionate about something. And it's okay to, um, to kind of avoid boredom a little bit, you know, whatever it is, like just, just, you know, really get clear on, you know, how you react when that boredom hits. You bring up Mm. a great point that we often conflate excitement with passion, but they're two completely different things. And one isn't bad and the other is good and vice versa. They're two different things. And here's where I think the dating analogy really breaks down. And I like it as an initial view, but I think Passion is sort of the opposite of dating mm. in a way. Because here's the thing. When you go on a date with someone, you're usually going to get the, especially the first date, yeah. it's the best version of that person. <laughs> and if you show up on that first date and you're like, oh yeah, this will be great if I could just change six things about them. Mm. Well, you're not, it's, A, it's not going to happen. But B, it's only going to go downhill from there if you think you're getting into it because you want to change that person, mold them into mm-hmm. the person that you can love. Well, that's a misunderstanding of love. 
Passion, however, like with writing, writing for me is so much better now than it was when I was 21 and wanting to put my head through a wall every time I wrote an incoherent paragraph because I was able to improve my skill set over time. And that is true. You can do that in a relationship. You can engage with someone. But quite often what happens with passion is there's quite a bit of drudgery. In fact, the root, the etymology of passion means what? To suffer. Pass us means to suffer. And so it's not what am I going to get excited about, but if you're truly searching for the thing you can be passionate about, the mm-hmm. question is, what am I willing to suffer for? What am I willing to drudge through the mm-hmm. drudgery? That's why writing is so compelling for me. Mm-hmm. I teach this to my writing students and how to write better is it's so compelling that the time that I want to put my head through the wall is worth it. That drudgery is not exciting. Mm. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. In fact, it's unpleasant. But the other side of it is the real passion. All the payoff is on the other side of the drudgery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Man, uh, you know, people ask, why am I here? You know, they look in the mirror, they, you know, they meditate, they're going to bed at night. Why am I here? Um, I don't think you're ever going to get just an answer that slaps you across the face and says, this is why you're here. You get to choose why you're here. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's really about being part of this healing process that we're um, doing with our audience and um, friends, family, whatever. Like I'm really passionate about helping people. Um, I'm trying to find a different word than help because I know how Josh feels about helpers. But uh, the (laughs) essence, I I, I think you all understand the essence of what I'm trying to say. Well, I'm trying not to help you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but all that to say is, is I get to decide why I'm here. Like right. I get to choose why I'm here and I get to focus on that. And then I get to be here and, and serve that purpose, not possessive purpose, but I get to serve that purpose um, on my own doing. It has nothing to do with, I wake up and um, I have, you know, a gun to my head, like, oh, you got to do this today. It's, it's uh, a purpose doesn't hold you like that. Yeah. You know, I, I was in a bookstore with my friend, uh, Dominic, one time. And I, I pick up a book from the shelf that seems interesting to me. I, I look through it for a few minutes and I put it back. And I go from book to book to book to book. And, and from the outside looking in, it's like, hey, here's just a guy that's just going through a lot of books. And at one point, my friend says, he goes, hey, man, can you teach me that? And I go, what do you mean? He says, you're a little process. I says, what process? And he says, I noticed that like, you, you're going through the book in a particular way. You did the same thing with each one of those books. He's like, I never know what to look for when I'm trying to find a good book. And it was through him that I noticed that I do have a little process. It's mm. very unconscious. Nobody ever taught it to me. I pick up a book, I look at the title, and then I look at the back cover to see what's the promise. What does the author promise me I will know, I will feel, or I can do if I read this book? And then I look at the inside flap and I kind of flip through a few pages to see, is there any evidence that the author delivers on this promise or is it just fluff? And then I look at the about the author to see if there's anything from their life that makes them seem interesting to me. Have they gone places where I want to go? Have they accomplished things that I'm trying to accomplish? Then I look at the table of contents because the table of contents tells you where they're going to take you and how they're going to get you there. You look at the end of the table of contents. That's where I'm going to end up if I read this book. These are the steps you're going to take me. Okay, that's fascinating. Then I look at the bibliography to see what other kind of books they've researched. Then I look at the first sentence. Does it make me want to read the second? And I had this process that I learned by having someone else point it out to me. Mm. Sometimes it looks like we're just mindlessly going from one thing to another, but we're actually invoking something that is very substantial and very deep. 
And Adam, when you said you just go from one subject to another and you talked about how you get curious about it and you kind of master it at a certain level, you learn the basics and then you lose interest and go on to something else. I'm like, wait a minute. That's a lot to unpack. That's not something that people can do. What does that even mean? You get interested in something and then you learn the basics. How the heck do you do that? Do you just pull up a YouTube video, the basics of what I'm curious about? Do you read blogs? Do you read articles? How do you pull all that stuff together? Like, that's a lot of knowledge. And it seems like you have mastered a lot of information about meta learning. And that seems to be one of what's possibly many patterns that's present in your going from one thing to the next. And I would encourage you to look for the evidence of the things that you're already going deep on, because when you become conscious of that, then you can do that more intentionally. I wouldn't underestimate the presence of those things. Got another question here from Amanda. This is Amanda from Fort Walton Beach, Florida. Recently, a friend and I were discussing how constantly moving as military families reinforces the challenges of what we purchase for our homes, meaning what works in one house might not work in the next one, or in many cases gets damaged during multiple moves. I struggle with wanting to own quality furniture and household items that will last a long time, for example, but also not knowing if they will fit or make it through the next several moves. I have found myself too often doing the quick, cheap solution with furniture and such, only to be dissatisfied with the quality or having to discard because the next living situation is different in size. How do we balance this issue with such a transient, unpredictable lifestyle? This is another one of those questions about balance here, right? But underneath that, it's really a question about the struggle of ownership and owning the right things, the best things, whatever. Mm -hmm. I'll start off by saying this. On a long enough timeline, everything is ephemeral. So even those permanent fixtures in your home 100 years from now will be gone because we will be gone. And so it's all ephemeral. And when I think about it through that lens, the question then becomes, okay, what is the reasonable timeline for this? And yes, if I buy a cheap plastic thing from Walmart, during our Talk Aboutable segment, I... Actually, no, I'm going to do this now because I think it works. I was taking Ella. She's doing her first dance soon, her Valentine's Day dance. And I oh. wanted to get her. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I wanted to get her some new shoes. She's nine years old and we went to Target to get some shoes. And I realized we are living in a cheap one-ply plastic world. Mm. And everything mm. there just felt and looked and seemed and gave the impression of temporary. Like, it's Mm. not going to last far past the checkout line. Mm. But there are, of course, more substantial things. The problem with buying something for a nine-year-old is even if I buy the highest quality Gucci loafer for her, which I would never do, (laughs) she's going to outgrow it within six months, right? You know, she's almost five feet tall now at age nine. So she's probably going to breach six feet any day now. <laughs> and uh, it's temporary, even the high quality stuff. But with respect to Amanda's question, what she's struggling with is the burden of ownership. I'm mm. These things would bring me greater joy, but I also have to move, which also brings me greater joy. And the cost of one might mean 
that you have to forsake the other. Yes, if you want the really high-end things, you may not be able to move as much, which would require a whole lot of upheaval in your life as well. But of course, there's upheaval in moving all the time as well, never feeling like you're rooted never feeling as though you're part of a community because you're moving every four or five years or two years or every year. A lot of friends of mine, Ryan Nicodemus being one of them, (laughs) seems to move every year. And that's not a problem for someone like Ryan because he's so extroverted that he can form an entire community within about 35 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) He comes comes prepackaged with all of the ingredients needed to start. He's like the chia pet of community. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best compliment anyone's ever given me. (laughs) You can put it on the the back of your next uh, book. It's on the the jacket there. The chia chia pet. pet. Yeah. Of community building. But here, here's here's the honest answer for you, Amanda. You're talking about constantly moving and figuring out what works. And what works in one home may not work in the next home. And I, that's totally true. Mm. But I would take it even a step farther. What works in my home today may not, quote, work for me a week from now, a year from now. In fact, coming up on the home tour segment this week... I'm going to talk about something that is going to shock a lot of our listeners that because it's a hard 180 degree pivot for me Mm. and my family. And it's something I would have never even considered six months ago. And yet here we are indulging in something that now works for us for this time period. However, if it ceases to work, meaning it ceases to add value, enhance our lives, augment our lives then I can't cling to it. One last thought on the furniture. Yes, it's nice to have nice things. Mm -hmm. But what does nice mean to you, right? Mm. Ikea makes some of the best designed, most nicely designed furniture that's out there. Period. Now, is it sturdy? Does it hold up after several moves? No, not really. But it looks good Mm -hmm. if you aren't moving. However, if you're moving it around all the time, it's essentially disposable, recyclable, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. I found when I moved from my previous apartment and I sold all of my furniture literally because it didn't work in the new home, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sure some pieces would have, but I sold all of it that didn't work. And some of the stuff I have now is actually less expensive than the things I had in my temporary home because the cost of something doesn't always correspond with the quality of it or the use of it. You can spend tens of thousands of dollars on a Fabergé egg, (laughs) but if you're never going to get any use or joy from that item, it's just a waste of money. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's always an option, man. Like, if you buy furniture for one place, you move to another, doesn't fit quite right in there, you can always sell it and and get something else. I, I got a couch when Mariah and I first moved in with each other. So, man, we're, we've been together 10 years this year. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, so we bought this couch, I guess, like eight years ago. And it's just like a Dutch, modern, timeless, like, couch. Like, it really kind of fits anywhere. Now, I think, like, in the place we have now, there might be a couch that could look better. You know, I could sit there and, like, fall in that trap of, like, yeah, that looks nice, but... I could get something that looks even better. Well, yeah. there's always something that's going to be better. And instead of me focusing on 
you know, how can I just constantly improve the decor of my home? It's more about like accepting and appreciating the things that I have and not falling in that trap of just wanting to improve, um, improve everything. Yeah. I, I was going to ask like your, your couch, mm-hmm. um, the one that you have now, yes. uh, I'm assuming that looks better in your living room mm-hmm. than the couch that you had at the old place. Yes. And it's about yeah. half the cost. It's the same company for whatever reason, but adding the the chaise lounger onto it doubled the price oh, of the couch. Wow. And so we simply went without because I'm like, I don't want to spend thousands of dollars to put my feet up. And so <laughs> <laughs> it, it just didn't make sense to me. I never saw you put your feet up on that I don't, either. I, yeah, I don't enjoy it. Bex kind of misses a little bit, oh, but okay. she also recognized, because we have all these discussions together. She recognized, in fact, next week on the podcast... I'm going to, part of the home tour, you're going to see the new she shed that she has Mm. now. And so we'll talk about that next week, but not to get too far off track here. Yes, the things that are there in my home now, it's not about constantly improving, getting better, as Ryan said. In fact, when we first came in here today, before we started recording, Ryan, you said, can you believe we get to do this, right? And this happened to me yesterday morning. I was with Ella. It was right before she was... We're taking her to uh, to her unschool. It's about 7.30 in the morning. I wake her up and we go do the cold plunge together. <laughs> and I get in the ice all the way. She just dips her head in it and it wakes her up. <laughs> and instead of saying, I ha-, she's like, oh, do you have to do it this morning? I'm like, no, Ella, we get to do it this morning. Yeah. And in fact, last night when I was tucking her in bed and she's like, do you have to go to LA tomorrow? <laughs> I said, no, Ella, I get to go to LA tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. I love that, man. You know, it's it's incredibly difficult to build a life around trying to guess what your future self is going to like. Mm. I'll, I'll give you the career version first. Something that a lot of students struggle with is they say, hey, I know what I love right now. I'm really interested in economics right now, but I'm only 18 right now. What if when I turn 30, I'm interested in physics? And I say, okay, well, you got two options then. You can go with what you know you're interested in right now, freaking excel at it, and then do the next thing from a state of having mastered something, or you can try to guess what you think you're going to be interested in at 30. So if you guess physics, all right, go study physics. You're not passionate about it. You're not going to excel at it. You're going to be kind of mediocre. You're going to struggle with it. You're going to be bored. You're probably going to change your mind like, oh, what if my 30-year-old self likes anthropology? And then you change it to that. Oh, but what if my 30-year-old self likes sociology? And then you change it to that. You're all over the place. You're confused and stressed out the whole time because you're not doing what you enjoy. And then when you get to 30, you haven't really prepared for anything because you haven't mastered anything and flourished in anything. You're going to make your next decision from a state other than joy. It's likely going to be resentment and fatigue. That's no victory, right? Mm. So it's a similar way when it comes to stuff. It's like, you know what you need right now. You know what works for the place you're in. You know what brings you joy for this life that you have right now. And if you go somewhere else and that doesn't entirely transfer, okay, you can make the adjustments that you need to make in terms of selling stuff, finding new things or whatever it may be. But the important thing to remember is that you can be wrong on both accounts, right? Like you can say, well, 
since I know I'm probably going to move in like six months or in three years, I'm going to buy the thing that's the most flexible that can work in any kind of place. And not only can that compromise the present joy, but that can totally be wrong about the new place because the new place isn't consulting your current ideas about what's flexible. The new place doesn't care about that at all. It's just going to be what it's going to be. And you bought this flexible thing that you're not passionate about so it can fit into the new place. And then you got to get rid of it anyway. The only thing you can know right now is what brings you joy. I personally would never compromise what I know brings me joy in the life that I'm actually living for the sake of trying to guess at information about my future self that's simply not accessible to me. You can be wrong about everything, but you can't be wrong about what brings you joy right now. And keep in mind, the joy is not in the thing. It's not in yeah. the furniture. Mm-hmm. The joy is not in your clothes, in your closet. It's not on your coffee table. It's not in your couch. It's not in your TV or your credenza or your dishes. The joy is in you. And so the best thing that the things around you can do, if they are well curated, is they can bring that joy out of you. But quite often what we do is the opposite. We cover up the joy that's inside us with excess stuff, with other people's expectations. I should buy the thing that is flexible or that might work in a distant future that is hypothetical. Mm. But the truth is, the joy is in you right now. Whatever things you're surrounding yourself with, I don't care if they're from Ikea or they're from some expensive furniture store on Beverly Boulevard. The truth is, the joy is still in you and those things can only enhance your experience of life. Mm. And when you follow joy, yeah, (laughs) yeah. And and when you follow that joy, right, when you lead with your highest excitement and you get to those crossroads where you have to make important decisions, you can make those decisions from a state of being in tune with your joy. If you're in tune with that now, you'll make smarter decisions then. Mm. Yeah. And so the question isn't about what you should acquire, what you should hold on to. It's about what's going to enhance or increase your joy or freedom your contentment, because otherwise it just gets in the way. Right. Let's move on to some social media questions. We got one from Facebook, Alabama. That's right. We have a question from Paula. She says, what can I do with old birthday cards signed with notes from deceased relatives? The only time I look at them is when I'm packing up all my stuff to move to a new home, but I feel awful about throwing them away. Of course, one of the things you can do is have a photo scanning party or a card scanning party. It's in our Minimalist rule book. You can download it for free, theminimalists.com slash rulebook. And one of the things in there is a photo scanning party. Now, we just call it a party because if you put party at the end of anything, Ryan shows up. <laughs> I'll bring the beer. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, we did this with our, we, we share a photo scanner, in fact. And so because I had all these photo albums and boxes and bins full of just haphazard miscellaneous, and a lot of it was photos and cards and photos of people I didn't even know who were in the photos. But if you have a photo scanning party, you bring some folks over and you look through the photos together, it starts to conjure up these stories. You realize that most of the photos you're holding on to or most of the cards you're holding up onto, you're never going to access them ever. And you can even discard those without scanning them. Mm. But we would just feed them through a scanner. We'll put a link, actually, Podcast Sean, if you can put a link to the photo scanner that we use in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast, if that's helpful for folks. That way you can actually sit down and turn this thing that is mundane, boring, dreadful, into something more enjoyable. If you bring three or four friends over and you're looking at these cards together, or maybe they're family members 
who would enjoy discussing these cards with you, right? Mm -hmm. And you can scan them. And that way you still have access to them. In fact, you have more access to them because they can't get lost in a flood or a fire if you have double your redundancy backed up mm -hmm. like I do on my photos. But now you have access to them without needing to hold on to the physical items themselves. One other thing I do, I have one file, uh, file folder with some photos in it. And so there's a hand, but it, that's my boundary. It can't go mm -hmm. beyond that file folder. And if I get more than that, then I'm going to have to get rid of the excess. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Setting up boundaries for yourself is really important. I mean, a, a piece of me is like, Paula, why are you, I mean, if the cards bring you joy, then keep them, hang on to them. Um, but there's clearly some kind of discomfort or pain happening when she thinks about holding on to these physical cards. I know it's difficult to throw away or recycle something that someone gave you, especially someone that you really, really love and cherish, especially someone you love and really, really cherish, and then they're not there anymore. So, you know, oh, this is the last card that so-and-so gave me. And it feels like when you throw that card out, it feels like, oh, I'm throwing that person out or I'm throwing the relationship out. And that's just not the case. And I learned this um, after my packing party where I got rid of some letters that meant a lot to me that my mom wrote me during high school. And I, I scanned it, um, you know, didn't want to like let go of, 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 of that piece of paper because it really represented something meaningful to me. Um, I put it in the trash and I was like, well, if I get up the next morning, I can just get up and, you know, if it's bothering me that much um, and I'm missing it that much, I can just get up and grab that letter off the top of the trash and keep it. And, you know, I didn't even think about it the next day. There was a, hmm. a point where I had to say goodbye um, and that was difficult. But after I said goodbye... It really, it really wasn't something that I was missing constantly. Yeah. Yeah, because as we often say, like in our last Netflix film, our memories are not in our things. Our memories are inside us. And the person is not in those things either. Mm. And so, yes, these things can trigger the memories that are inside us. That's why the photo scanning party works or taking a picture of a physical item works because you don't lose the trigger of the memory, but you don't have to hold on to the thing if it's getting in the way for you. Yeah. I remember when I was 20, my, uh, my best friend from childhood, he passed away, heart failure, playing basketball, no, no previous conditions, anything like that. And I remember, you know, when, when we buried his body and, and there's that moment where the coffin begins to descend, uh, I, I, I just felt terrible because I felt like, we're all about to leave my friend here. Mm. You know, we're about to leave him here and we're about yeah. to go back to our lives and figure out, you know, what we're going to do about work the next day, what we're going to do about eating and running our errands. And he's going to be left here. And what gave me the, the consolation and the strength was recognizing that, no, that's, that's not my friend. We're leaving behind. You know, my friend already left mm. and, and we're doing this to honor the fact that he was here. And it was that understanding that gave me the strength to walk away. And I think it's interesting that when someone we love gives us a birthday card and then they pass away, we have an easier time burying the bodies than the things that they left behind. Mm, we wow. don't feel like we're throwing the body away, but we feel like we're throwing the person away if we bury a card. And that's probably because we have a few narratives going on. Number one, we understand that 
the person is not the body. And keeping that body around isn't the same thing as keeping the person around. Mm. We also understand that if you keep that person around, that body around, it's going to make it harder to let go of the aspects of your life with them that you know that you need to let go. And also, quite frankly, it's going to start becoming a distraction in a way that makes it difficult for you to enjoy the memories of them that you should focus on. Mm -hmm. And there's something similar going on with things. If the things you're holding on to from a, a, a deceased loved one, if they're starting to burden you, if they're starting to annoy you, if you're starting to wrestle with throwing them away, then now that's becoming a distraction from all of the wonderful memories that you could be having about them. By all means, keep the things that bring you joy and that bring you meaning. But one thing that you could do in addition to scanning them if these things are burdening you and weighing you down is you could bury them and have a funeral for them. Mm. Ritualize it. Say goodbye to them. Create a eulogy for those things that that person left you. And if these are birthday cards, you can, either say, you can even say, hey, on my birthday or maybe the eve of my birthday, I'm going to come back to the burial spot wow. or whatever it may be or, or just wherever I am, I'm going to take a few moments and I'm going to thank that person for being part of my life and for shaping the history of my birthdays in the way that they did. That could be a meaningful way to not only let this stuff go, but to also keep alive the memories that this stuff symbolizes anyway and that have kind of become lost amidst the distractions of it feeling like a burden. Mm. Got a question here from Instagram. This one comes from Courtney. What's your take on holding on to books pertaining to your career? For example, I have a pile of medical books that I've kept just in case I want to reference them in the future. Just in case, of course, are the three most dangerous words in oh, the English language. It's the best reason to hold on to anything. <laughs> like When all else fails, just tell yourself, I might need that one day. <laughs> Literally anything. I mean, we yes. had, remember we had someone who wrote into the podcast. You can write into us, podcast at minimalists.com with your obsolete objects. And one of them was... A gallstone, I think from the oh, 70s yeah. that they were holding on to, yep. just in case. And here's the thing. We usually don't even answer the just in case. It's just, I'll hold on to this just in case. Well, just in case what? I don't know. I don't want to think about it. Just in case I ever do want to think about it is why I'm going to hold on to Ooh, it. Yeah. And so I think that quite often happens with books or especially textbooks that pertain to your career. If they're useful to you, meaning you've used them. Here's another rule for you that I use in my own life, 90, 90 right? Mm -hmm. Have I used this in the last 90 days? Will I use it in the next 90? Uh, I was wearing a white t-shirt the other day mm. and Ella looked at me, she goes, you don't usually wear that. <laughs> and I said, Ella, if I don't wear it within 90 days, I get rid of it. And so I own two white t-shirts and yeah. I make sure that I, I pepper them in occasionally if I'm going to wear something under mm. over top of it. I have a white t-shirt. Mm. And it freaked her out a little bit because she sees me in it maybe once every three months or so. Yeah. And then other times I'm just wearing my traditional black t-shirts. And isn't that what we often do though, is we say, I don't have any boundary here. Mm. And so I'm going to hold on to this book just in case, 2020 rule, mm -hmm. the 90-90 rules, the seasonality rule. And the truth is, if you're not using those books regularly, still not a problem if you want to hold on to them. If you like the way they look on your shelf, yeah, great. But if you're writing into a podcast and asking about this, clearly it's causing some sort of burden. It's taking up some sort of space that you wish it didn't take up. And so what are the boundaries that you can make do with 
that give you that permission to let go. And if you're within the boundaries, by all means, hold on to it loosely. But if you step outside those boundaries, mm. it's okay. You mm. can let it go. Yeah. You know, I don't think that's something we've ever really talked about the aesthetics of books. Like some books, they're beautiful. And yeah. it's totally okay to have it because it's it's art to you yeah. mm. um, at how you have your book set up. It makes me think of the last bookstore. Have you ever been? Have you been there yet? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. man. Beautiful place. And that second floor, how they... Um, color coded everything. I mean, it's a like an art project on that second floor. It's yeah. downtown Los Angeles. Yeah, if down- anyone wants to make a field trip. Yeah, it's amazing. And um, I just love how, yeah, like you couldn't have that art project without holding on to all those books. It's funny you're saying that because next week, I, I said, no, I said I was going to do during our home tour next week, I'm doing Bex's She Shed. That's actually two weeks from today. Okay. Because next week, I have 10 photos of all of the various books that are decor placed throughout my home. Now, I have my bookshelf, which are actual books I use, but then we have coffee table books Mm. that are, and also recipe books in the kitchen. And so they can be a part of the decor as well. The question is, what is the boundary that's appropriate for you? And even when I went back to my, that apartment that I had in Dayton that we were talking about earlier, Ryan, the, the big, beautiful loft apartment, I found a picture just yesterday of, oh, here's another photo for you to put up on the screen here, Jordan a photo of my coffee table in that space. It was piled high with books. I had no bookshelf. Yeah. And so intentionally, aesthetically, I took all of my books. There were a couple hundred books, mm-hmm. or maybe a hundred or so books that were just piled on top of this table and it added an aesthetic beauty to an otherwise pristine space. That was the boundary I set up for myself. It wouldn't be wrong to remove all of them and get rid of them. It wouldn't be wrong to get wall-to-wall bookshelves either. The question is, what's appropriate for me in this chapter of my life? Yeah. yeah. One of my favorite insights from David Allen's Getting Things Done is his recommendation that whenever you start a project, you define what it means to be done. Because in the absence of such a definition, you really can't distinguish whether you're just fooling around with something indefinitely mm-hmm. or actually aiming to complete a project. Borrowing from the same fundamental idea, I would say for anyone who is struggling with the whole just-in-case business, I would ask myself, what's the difference between just-in-case and no matter what? What's Mm. the difference between saying, I'm holding on to this just-in-case I need it, and saying, I'm holding on to this no matter what because I will always be able to conceive a hypothetical scenario in which its presence in my life can be Mm -hmm. justified? Right. Because there's always a hypothetical scenario that could justify you holding on to that thing. Mm -hmm. So when you say just in case, I think just in case is just fine as long as you define what it means to be just in case and how that differs from no matter what. Mm -hmm. And so it's having the boundary. It's like if, if I say, hey, Josh, let's hang out someday. And Josh says, what's the difference between someday and never at all? If that statement is meaningful. I've got to have an answer. Um, can, can we hang out before the month is over? All right. I'm not committing to next week. I'm not committing to tomorrow. I haven't even committed to a specific time, but I've said, hey, by the end of this month, we're going to revisit this plan to hang out sometime and we can make it happen. So if you're going to keep something just in case, I would put some boundaries around it and yeah. say, what's the difference between that and no matter what? And like, all right, let's, let's come back and review this in a month. 
or let's come back and review this in three in three months. Like, what's the hypothetical scenario you're concerned about? About when do you think that might happen? What kind of time frame? All right, cool. You get to hang on to it for that long, but there's got to be a reviewing period where you come back and say, all right, this is actually a no matter what dressed up in just in case language. And I think it's time to let it go. Oh yeah. It makes me think how the 90-90 rule is kind of a just in case boundary. Mm-hmm. So you yeah. look at something, you're like, oh, I haven't used it in a lot, or I, I have used it in the last 90 days. And then you think about the next 90 days and you're like, eh, maybe, mm-hmm. but I've used it over the last three months. So I will, uh, let's see what happens over the next three months. So it is yeah. like permission to hold on to, to something for just in case, but you have a clear line that says, this is when, when I'm going to let it go though. Yeah. You've got a, a deadline of sorts. And there if you, you keep using it, wonderful. It's not a just-in-case item. It's a useful item. Mm-hmm. But if it's perpetually just-in-case, that's, that's when I'm clinging. That becomes a problem. We're going to skip Ellie's question this week. Malabama, save that one for next week just for the sake of time. Because speaking of time, Ryan, what time is it? You know what time it is. It's time for the lightning round where we answer your questions from TikTok. Because oh, the people on TikTok are very mad, Ryan. We're so cool. <laughs> we're so cool being TikTokers. Why, why are they mad on TikTok? I'll, I'll tell you later okay. during our talk about my seat. Okay. Yeah, during the talk about segment, we'll talk about that. Now, during the lightning round, this is where Ryan, TK, and I answer your questions questions in less than six, 60 seconds, we do our best to give you something pithy, a short shareable answer that we copy and paste in the, the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast so you can copy and share our pithy answers on social media if you like. Looks like we have a question here today from Jay-Z. I don't think wanting nice things always equals feelings of inadequacy. Excessive acquiring, yes, I can see that. What's wrong with wanting one nice thing? (laughs) You know I like fancy things. (laughs) Let's throw 60 seconds on the clock for Ryan Nicodemus. All right, let's do it. A life is enhanced, not defined by our possessions. So the ownership of something doesn't make you adequate or inadequate. I think the essence of this question is why does desiring something nice, why does that make them inadequate? I don't think it does. And Josh and I would never make anyone feel bad for wanting a fancy thing. The question is, is um, why do you want that thing? And, you know, what are you willing to give up for that thing? So let's say you want a nice car. That's great. Get a nice car. If you're really passionate about a car, go ahead and and get a nice car if you can afford it. Now, if you can't afford it and you tell yourself, oh man, you know, I'm going to have to like work 80 hours a week for the next five years to get this car. I don't know if I can commit to that. Well, then maybe that is where, yeah, you've got to kind of fall back and maybe question whether or not that purchase is correct because now you're giving up your time for that car. So the question isn't, again, if you're adequate or inadequate with your possessions, it's really about um, what are what's your relationship with those possessions? Hmm. Or the, what's your relationship with the desire for those possessions? I mean, I almost had it. <laughs> no, nah, man, that's good, man. That's good. Don't, don't let the buzzer worry you. I, got, I, I never worry about that buzzer. If I need three minutes, I take that's three. Right, that's right. <laughs> we got another shot clock for TK Coleman. <laughs> Minimalism isn't about right versus wrong. It's about what's right for me versus what's wrong for me. When I was a little boy, my mom had me doing some chores in the house. And I remember looking out the window and I saw some of the other kids in the neighborhood running around playing. And I said, mom, what about them? What about them? Don't don't they have chores to do? And she said, worry about your story, son. Mm. You don't know their story. There's no faster way to make your own story miserable 
than by becoming preoccupied with other people's story in an effort to moralize them and what they do. You don't know their story. You don't know what they need and why they need it. You don't know what they need to get rid of and why they need to get rid of it. Minimalism isn't about moralizing about how many possessions other people have. It's about taking a look at your life and saying, how can I optimize for the joy that I want to feel, for the adventure that I want to experience? Nothing less. Mm, man, you, you got it. You got it. That was great, man. That was great. Right on a minute. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the way he was looking at me the whole time. How was, how was he looking at you? Like, like, come on, TK. <laughs> Pass the ball. Pass the ball. <laughs> Got James Harden over here. Oh, man. And what he was saying makes me think of, uh, you know, like I've seen bios before where it's like, you know me, not my story. <laughs> by, by the way, this feels yeah. like like Harden. I'm just going through my legs, <laughs> desperately looking for a shot. No, no idea where I'm going. <laughs> just chuck it up when that buzzer goes off. <laughs> I got some words for Jay-Z. Give me uh, 60 seconds. So, enjoying a thing creates wonder. Needing a thing creates worry. Mm. And so if you're asking about what's the problem with wanting a nice thing, no problem with wanting it. But as soon as you feel like you're incomplete without it, then what? You need it to complete you. And therefore, that needing has created a sort of prison of worry in your life. Mm. Because when you get the thing eventually, if you do get it, Now there'll be a whole new set of worry because I need this thing. It makes it much more difficult to enjoy it. And without that joy, you don't have the wonder of the experience that that thing was meant for in the first place. By the way, you can follow The Minimalist on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. At The Minimalist is our handle over there. We'll check in with our Patreon live stream here in a moment. But first, real quick for right here, right now, here's one thing that's going on in the life of The Minimalists. Sunday Symposium is back, y'all. Oh, yeah. yeah. Heck, yeah. We need like a little sound effect like, oh. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> Messiah or something. That's good. Yes. We had four sold out events last year and we're moving it to quarterly right now. So our next one is March 26th. Only 200 seats. I think there are only a few dozen seats left at this point. Um, but you can just check there, sundaysymposium.com. I will tell you this, last time we announced it on the podcast, they went pretty quickly. And mm. so you can get your tickets right now, sundaysymposium.com. It's a live event, a gathering of open-minded, dogma-free people. I don't care what your religion is, what your background is, what your age is, what your socioeconomic level is, what your level of understanding or education is. and Whether you listen to R&B or not. Well, you have to listen to our <laughs> Whether you think Michael Jordan's better or worse than LeBron James, <laughs> there will be a quiz afterward. <laughs> but these events have been truly magical. We uh, On Christmas last year, we released one of the events. So if you want a taste of that event, it was called How to Let Go. It was our fourth Sunday symposium, our first one of the year. And I don't know, it could be our last one. It could always be the last one. And so Mm. don't put it off. If you've really wanted to go to one of these and they sold out, you couldn't get tickets beforehand. Now's your opportunity, 200 seats, and then it's completely full. Sundaysymposium.com. We'll do a live talk, a discussion, 
There'll be uh, some music beforehand, a lot of joy, some hugs afterward. Yeah. Is Nicodemus doing any stand-up comedy for this one? <laughs> <laughs> Pol- polka, I thought. Yeah, polka. <laughs> yeah. I, I, learning how to play accordion now. <laughs> With the juggling act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. Don't challenge me like that, TK. <laughs> it's just a request. No, no, that's that's funny. So if you've been wanting to see The Minimalists live, you want to see the three of us live, sundaysymposium.com, March 26th, Sunday at noon. You can get your tickets right now. Alabama, let's check in with the Patreon live stream. What do you got for us? We have a question or rather a comment here from Heather Walsh. She said, hi, I just wanted to thank you for the excellent audio quality of the podcast. I have unsubscribed to countless podcasts because they seem to be recorded through Skype or underwater. And I'm extremely sensitive to irritating sounds. I grew up in the radio industry. My dad was a broadcaster and he taught me to appreciate sound. Your podcast is the gold standard. It is crystalline. And I love it for that as much as I love your content. Hmm. Oh, also, I've been a fan since 2012. You guys have always been awesome and you changed my life for the better. But adding TK was the best thing you could have done. Not only does he have a voice like butter, but I also agree with every word he utters. Oh, what a <laughs> Oh, man. She goes on to say, I truly appreciate a perspective that does not focus just on stoicism. Thank you mm. all so much for what you do. You are adding more value to lives than you know. Mm. Well, I would, I want to disagree because I don't agree with everything TK says. <laughs> but I also know TK well enough to know that he doesn't agree with everything that he says. He's yeah. willing to be active minded enough to change his mind, even about his own beliefs. Mm. Hey, well, I do agree with these words. I love you so much. Thank you so much for that comment. Yeah. Hugs from the heart. Yeah. Thank that's, you so that's much. Awesome. Heather, thank you. And also a big shout out to. Post production Peter, Professor Sean, and Podcast Sean, who all make the audio sound crystalline. Yeah. What a great compliment. Because you have no idea how much um, Josh and those men work on the sound quality. So, um, you know, it wasn't just stroking TK's ego, it was also stroking Josh's ego. And (laughs) it deserves to be stroked. Can I say that on air? (laughs) Just go no further. Just go no further. <laughs> uh, speaking of, I know that Heather said that the sounds annoy her. I agree with a lot of podcasts that are, they're not really podcasts or shows. They're recorded Zoom calls, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> or underwater. We should move our studio to underwater. <laughs> <laughs> now, live from underwater. <laughs> yeah, there are so many, po- even like there are multi-million dollar podcasts that sound like garbage. Mm-hmm. And so thank you for noticing that. I will say this, she, she mentioned the annoying sounds. I had a few people mention the buzzer being a bit disruptive. We might need to find like a nice gong or something. Oh, I like Ooh, the gong that's idea. That's so zen. Yeah. They, should that. they should do that in basketball as well. Change it to a <laughs> gong. <laughs> we'll find something a bit more gentle starting with the next episode professor sean in the right. meantime sorry about the buzzers if that annoyed anyone <laughs> i know that uh uh we'll we'll get it mixed in there in post-production so that it's not too annoying let's do one more question from the live stream alabama here's a question from dan can you offer your advice on item replacement in terms of balancing environmental cost and fair trade manufacturing while ensuring the item will fulfill its requirement without compromise or repurchase. Mm. Hmm. I'm reminded of everyone's been sending this Jerry Seinfeld stand-up joke to us. I was going to review it on a talk aboutable segment on the private podcast, but we might as well talk about it right now. He has this, uh, actually, in fact, 
Professor Sean, I'm sure he can pull it up really quick and then we could we can actually talk about the the joke itself because here's what happens. I understand the concern for the environment, mm-hmm. but when we've purchased the thing, we've done much of the damage to the environment that we're worried about. And so one of the unexpected benefits of minimalism for me was but by consuming 90% less, I probably produce 90 to 95% less waste. That was not my intention when I started simplifying my life. It was much more for me. Mm. But then the benefits rippled in all of these other areas. Let's check out this quick joke from Jerry Seinfeld, and then we could talk about it. We'll throw anything out at any time. Mm. Where's the wedding album? I thought you were done with it. <laughs> and that was wrong. I admit that now. Those are special memories, and they're gone now. But the point is this. <laughs> all things on earth only exist in different stages of becoming garbage. Your home is a garbage processing center where you buy new things, bring them into your house, and slowly crapify them over time. Objects start the highest level, visible in a living area. From there, it goes down to a closet, cupboard, or drawer. That's why we have those, so we don't have to see all of the huge mistakes we have made. In the closet, it goes to the garage, one of the longest phases in trashification. No object has ever made it out of the garage and back into the house. (laughs) Or a personal storage unit. This is the saddest of all. Now, instead of free garbage, you pay rent to visit your garbage. (laughs) It's almost as though he's conjuring the ghost of George Carlin here. Yes. (laughs) But he has this new take on it. And yes, it is true that very rarely do we go store something. In one of these areas, we hide our stuff because there's a slight sense of shame. Like, I bought this. It isn't doing what I thought it would do, or maybe it did what I thought it would do, but it's not continuing to do it in perpetuity. Mm. So I'm going to hide it away in the closet. I'm going to hide it in the basement. I'm going to hide it in the attic. I'm going to hide it in the garage or the storage locker. Very rarely do those things make a new appearance in our home. Do we pull them back out and say, now's the day where I begin to get value from this thing again? Yeah. Well, there's something about throwing it away that makes us feel the loss, right? So if I put it in the garage, I feel like I spent a lot of money on that and I'm still kind of being responsible getting some theoretical value out of it by virtue of my ability to imagine some future day when I might use it. But once you throw it away, you got to admit to yourself the truth that was already true at the time you bought it. It's a loss. Yeah. I mean, as soon as you take it off the shelf, like you're, the damage is done. Yeah. Um, it doesn't, I mean, I always uh, said it in, in this way, like, hey, if you take something off the shelf, it's slowly decomposing. Mm-hmm. Now it's just decomposing at your place. Mm-hmm. And then when you put it in a landfill, which actually helps it decompose a little faster, I mean, if that's the end result, well, then the landfill is actually, you know, the place for it. But yeah, no, that is, that's a great bit. That must be from, uh, how long ago was that, I wonder? Seems like a pretty new one. Yeah. No idea. We'll check back in with the live stream here in a little bit. But first, Malabam, what else you got for us? Here are some minimalist comments and insights from our listeners. Hi, my name is Lisa and I'm calling from Maryland. I really just wanted to give a comment. I have listened to your podcast for about a year and have enjoyed many of them. Thank you. And I also just wanted to make a comment in reference to family, friends, and gifts. My granddaughter will be four in August and my Gen Y daughter is a budding minimalist and as a result of that is trying to reduce the number of gifts coming into her home. 
So she did an invitation and indicated that there could be donations made to the NICU, which my granddaughter uh, resided in for a brief period of time after her birth, or give a donation to her college fund. We were discussing the backlash that she received from people that she worked with who came up to her and told her that she was denying her child a childhood uh, and a variety of other rather negative responses. I'm proud of my daughter. She's holding tight and holding fast and will continue to use this option for my granddaughter's birthday. But it was interesting to actually see this firsthand as opposed to just, you know, hearing about it on the podcast. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Alicia Aiken. I'm calling from Byron, Minnesota. Um, I'm calling because I listened to the podcast. Oh, I love your podcast. But I was listening to the clothing episode this weekend. And um, I have a good, really, some really good recommendations to help find women's clothing that is responsibly made. Um, there's a blogger that basically she works as an ethicist. And then this is like her side passion. But if you go to thegarment.ca, she's Canadian. So thegarment.ca, you can see her um, website and blog. And also you can find her on the Garment Life on Instagram. Um, other companies that I personally love are Ace and Jig. Um, their stuff is expensive, but really cool and beautiful fabrics. It's all ethically made. Um, and I also really like Bridge and Burn from Portland. Um, anyways, just thought maybe that would be helpful. Welcome back to the Minimalists Private Podcast. We got a bunch of simple living segments for you. We're going to check in with the Patreon live stream again here in a moment. But first... Let's read some more about less. We'll put a link to this article in the show notes because it's 17 pages long. It's the Sunday long read. The title of it is The American Mall's Long Goodbye. Mm-hmm. And since I only have nine minutes with this segment, we're not going to read the whole thing. But this one is written by Tao Tai. And she starts the article like this. It's a Thursday afternoon in July. And I'm expecting a ghost town at my local mall. But it's not exactly that. When I walk in, past the splash pad where kids run barefoot and the gigantic co-working space that replaced the Brit Punk gastro pub where I used to grab a pint, the air conditioning blasts me with the best kind of welcome. The stores aren't crowded, but they are also are nowhere near abandoned. There's a wide range of ages of shoppers and strollers, from older adults and docksiders and pastel polos to children wearing tall skirts with crocs, swinging their mother's hands as they peer into the pastry case at Starbucks, a playground for all generations, the motto for our mid-sized Midwestern city. But now, as a 37-year-old mom of a young child, I know no one at all. At the risk of sounding completely out of touch, I couldn't even tell you what most of the stores are or what they sell without a peek in the windows. I think this is what they call a, quote, dark night of the elderly millennial's soul. Ooh. Now, the article goes on to give us some stats. I want to read some of these real quick, and then I want to talk to you about your thoughts about dying malls. Ryan and I did a whole episode a year or so ago. We'll put a link to it in the show notes about dying malls. But 
In her article, she says, the American mall is dying. With the rise of online shopping and the effects of an ongoing pandemic, malls have suffered what appears to be an irreversible decline. In 2020, JCPenney and Brooks Brothers announced bankruptcies with ensuing store closures across the country. Macy's closed 20% of its stores. That same year, CoreSight Research, a data firm with a focus on retail, estimated that 25% of America's 1,000 or so malls would close within the next five years. Mm. 250 malls across the country, though the ones most at risk, are less affluent ones that bring in fewer sales per square foot than thriving luxury malls. However, the pandemic isn't solely to blame. Many economists guess that the mall's decline has been exacerbated, but not created, by COVID. Monthly revenue for malls has been dropping since 2010, a full decade before the onset of the pandemic. I would say even before then, Ryan and I used to manage some retail stores Backed up to 150 retail stores at one period of time, 25 of which were corporate-owned retail stores. And so I was responsible for negotiating leases, finding the right real estate. Do we renew the lease in this mall? Is it dying? Mm. Or do we want to move across town? Do we want to close the store altogether? Is there a new mall that's popping up that we want to put a store in? So you're always asking these questions. There's something about the shifting geography that is interesting. But I also agree with the author's sentiment that I don't recognize most of the stores. When I walk into a shopping mall now, I'm curious in a way. I went to the one in Ventura recently Mm. to buy a sweatshirt for Ella. She keeps wanting a a sweatshirt that is really fuzzy on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to go find one for her, right? (laughs) And I walk into this mall and I am overwhelmed by the smells, by the fluorescent lights. It is not a pleasant experience for me. Although at one point in time, when I was a teenager, there was nothing better than going to the Middletown Mall, the town mall in Middletown, Ohio, Mm -hmm. and hanging out there. Right. You probably weren't buying anything then, right? Or if I was, I was spending my whole paycheck on clothing to make me feel as though I was adequate or important, right? Mm -hmm. I was learning consumerism then. But you're right. It didn't require the act of a purchase in order to hang out because it was more of a co-working or congregation space, not working, but a Mm -hmm. congregation space for teenagers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the crux of this article. And the question now is like, well, what are teens going to do without the mall or the mall equivalent. And mm. of course they will find something, but I don't know what the answer to that is. Mm. Well, weren't they already at home playing video games? Right, TikTok. <laughs> that's, that's what they're going to replace mall walking with. Right, and so no wonder we're feeling so isolated. I didn't feel isolated back then at all. Mm-mm. And that was not that long ago. We're talking the 1990s, mm-hmm. right? And we would go to the mall regularly, multiple times a week to spend time with friends, to meet new friends. Now, it is unfortunate that the mall is a place where we go to indulge in consumerism. But as mm-hmm. TK just illustrated, that it doesn't have to be what it, ha- what it is. I think of our friend Rob Bell, who, when he started his church in Grand Rapids, they don't, he was getting so many people there in the first year, they donated a mall, to, an abandoned mall to him. And so they repurposed the space as a place where people can congregate, which is actually the original 
point of the mall when they started in Minnesota in the 1950s. It was, hey, let's build a town square in a place that gets really cold so we can have climate control. And you go there and you do the things you would do in a town, but it's heated mm. in the winter. So you're not miserable outside. Yeah. And it became something different. You're miserable inside because <laughs> you feel the impulse of I must consume, I must purchase, I need these things. And God, I fell victim to it. I mean, I would I had 14 credit cards, most of which were birthed out of my experience at the shopping mall. I need the Banana Republic card yeah. or the Rogers Jewelers card so I can buy this $3,000 watch that will say something about who I am as a man. Mm. Mm. It wasn't that. It said something about who I was as a person. I felt inadequate and I was willing to make my future self suffer, mm -hmm. pay the cost of a temporary perceived benefit right now. And there was no real benefit. Buying a Rolex, or for me it was a tag hewer watch, didn't buy me more time. In fact, it took my time away from me. Spending $3,000 on a timepiece didn't get me back any time. I mean, I had to waste more time working for a corporation in order to pay back that bill over 12 interest-free months. But of course, what happens? You don't pay it off in the 12 months and you get to the 13th month and all of the interest from before then cascades down on you. Mm. And that's by design. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I think in some ways the decline or looming death of the shopping mall is, is less about us not consuming as much and it's more about us consuming with greater ease and efficiency than ever before. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if it just will cause consumerism to spike even more. Because at least when you were at the mall, your consumption choices were always highly visible. Mm -hmm. Right? You reached in your wallet and pulled out your credit card or your money. You, you had to walk around with a bag and, you know, you buy a whole lot of things. After a while, your ability to walk around and enjoy yourself and feel loose is going to be compromised. And you got all this stuff that you're carrying around. Now, with the magic of one click, man, you can just like ring it up, right? You don't even have to look at your credit card. You don't have to look at your wallet. You don't have to look at your cash. It's just like, it's an abstraction now. You know, in theory, that you're paying, but you don't have to look at any of the things that are involved in a financial transaction. I just push that button and I'll have a product that's delivered two, three days later. So I even create some space between me mm -hmm. and the, experiencing the gravitational pull of the stuff that's coming into my home. It'll be interesting to see what the trends look like as we move further and further away from a you know, physical location form of shopping to a, everything being online. Yeah. I mean, it's like you go to the mall, you have only a hundred stores to choose from, which mm -hmm. sounds like a lot, but now yeah. you have a hundred thousand to choose from. In your pocket. In your pocket. Yeah. It's, yes. oh man, it's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah it, it's funny that they mentioned the pandemic, um, the pan, or maybe you brought the pandemic up, but regardless, I don't think the pandemic created what we have now with the shopping malls and storefronts. It's like, like you said, it was kind of already happening. Yes. And the pandemic basically um, accelerated, accelerated yeah. yeah, accelerated this whole process of storefronts kind of going by the wayside. You're absolutely yeah. right. And I, I love what TK is saying here too, because he brings up a good point. When you remove all the friction, you lose traction. Hmm. And so I'm sure you've had a credit card declined at some point, Ryan. Sure. Yeah, I've had a bunch of credit cards declined. In mm. fact, I remember a specific experience. I was at Elder Beerman's 
in the town mall and I would try a credit card. It didn't work. I tried another one. It didn't work. I tried a third one, decline. And so you feel this sense of shame, right? Now, my solution there was actually I signed up for an Elder Beerman's card (laughs) and they approved me. Oh my God, that's wild. (laughs) Hey guys, I'm from the suburbs. What is he talking about? (laughs) Someone explain what this is. (laughs) But Here's the funny thing, TK, is now if you get declined from the one-click purchase, there's no one to say, hey, I'm sorry, it's declined. It's just an error message. And it doesn't even tell you decline. It just says, error, please try another card. And so you don't even feel that same level of, "Uh uh-oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Oh yeah, I'll just use a different card. I'll put it on the next card, the next card. And it became a joke for me because I'm like, oh, do you take Banana Republic? They're like, no. I'm like, (laughs) but you can sign up for our card. (laughs) Okay, great. I'll sign up for your car, I'll let you, mm. and they're like, oh, by the way, you get 10% off your purchase today. Mm. I'd be dumb not to. This $80 tie, I get $8 off of it? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Digitize indentured servitude. You know, if we had to experience it directly, it'd be like, uh, oh, you, you, uh, no, you can't use that uh, Banana Republic card, but you can give us five hours of your time. Mm. Five mm. hours of your life. Mm. <laughs> mm. Hey, what, what Ryan was saying about 100 stores with like limited options, there's a chance you may not find the thing that you're looking for. But man, when you're online, there's zero chance. Oh you're yeah, you're probably going to find right? something. Yeah. It, although you run into the paradox of choice as well. Mm. The paradox of choice says when I show up at a Walmart or if I get onto Amazon, I start going through all the reviews. This happened to me recently. I was trying to find a uh, light for at home, my home office. And... I went down the rabbit hole. I couldn't make a decision because there were so many options. And eventually I just had to say, throw my hands up. This happened again. Well, I was looking for a broom. I wanted to, and here's the thing, like Bex was like, just pick one of the brooms. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I want the broom that we're going to use for the rest of our lives. Right. And I will spend in a disproportionate amount of time, I'll spend two or three or four hours finding the broom. Yeah. But when I do that, I know that it's now taken care of in perpetuity. Unless I decide I need a different broom for a different reason. Mm -hmm. But now I have this 24-inch broom for our patio. It works really well. It costs twice as much as all the cheap brooms that were on Amazon. Mm -hmm. But I know it's well worth it for me in the long run because I know I plan on keeping it for over a decade or maybe even longer. And so part of minimalism for me is not about not buying things. It's about buying the thing that is most appropriate so I don't have to keep worrying about fixing it, replacing it, Mm. damaging it, whatever it might be. But of course, even then, you can can put yourself in a tailspin of, I need the perfect object. It's not about that either. It's about acquiring the objects that work well for me so I can stop worrying about them whatsoever. But usually it's about not acquiring the thing at all because... As our theme song says, I bet you'll be just fine without it. Mm. Let's move on to some talk aboutables. I got this essay I wrote a few years ago, Ryan. I wanted to read this. It's called How to Go Clothes Shopping. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. The average American tosses 88 pounds of clothes each year, yet we keep buying more when we actually need less. Pull any article of clothing from the back of your closet, the bottom of your dresser, the bin in your basement. 
When's the last time you wore it? Last month? Last year? Last decade? Whenever I feel the urge to hit the mall to go clothes shopping, I head to my closet instead to try on the clothes I already own. Am I unhappy with this shirt? These pants? Those sunglasses? If so, why do I still own them? And if I am in fact satisfied, then why do I feel the need to acquire more? Am I trying to fulfill a need that doesn't exist? The lure of consumerism is real. Most objects appear more fashionable, more necessary, more urgent when they're on a mannequin, model, or retail display. But the clothes in your closet serve the same purpose. Cover, warmth, style. Every time I go shopping in my own closet, I'm inspired by the results. Either I find an item I forgot I owned and start wearing it again, or I stumble across that oversized orange sweatshirt I'm eager to donate. Either way, my checking account is grateful. Then, whenever I genuinely need something new, I feel good about my purchase because I ask the right questions and because I'm meeting a material need not a primal impulse. And so we were just talking about shopping malls a moment ago, and even online has become the new shopping mall equivalent. But that impulse drives us to buy things because of that sense of inadequacy that we feel. Mm -hmm. And I call this shopping in my own closet. As I mentioned earlier, I did this recently with the 90-90 rule, the seasonality rule. I own two white t-shirts. I was wearing one and my daughter was like, hey, I, you usually don't wear that. Or I don't see you wear that very frequently. Mm. And the truth is, I wore it because otherwise I was going to get rid of it. I have things in my closet. If I don't wear them within 90 days, then I ask myself, am I going to use it in the next 90 days? Mm. And if not, I let it go. So I go shopping in my own closet, try things on. Oh, I like the way this looks. Why don't I wear this more? Or, you know what? I've never liked the way this looks. Mm. Why don't I just get rid of it? Mm. Yeah, it helps to be honest with yourself when you when you do that. I go shopping in my own closet, and it's um, not a very big selection. It's just a bunch of black t-shirts, <laughs> <laughs> a couple black pairs of pants. <laughs> you know, it makes me wonder if maybe the death of the shopping mall can contribute to more of that. Because we talked earlier about how... Um, you remove the friction involved with making purchases. And so that makes it easier to purchase. But there's this other benefit that we didn't talk about. And that is the tendency we have to make impulse purchases based on something new and shiny being right in front of us. You can reach out and you can touch it. Uh, and in fact, I, I've heard it said that one of the reasons why shopping, quote unquote, tends to help with depression isn't because of the actual purchasing decisions you're making, but because you're getting up you're moving around, you're getting out of your home, you're changing your environment, you're being around people mm. and all of these other factors that are good for your health. You're getting some fresh air and some sunlight. Mm. So all the stuff you have to do to go to the mall and shop is actually healthy for you, right? In between being at home and making the purchasing decision. Well, when you're at home and all you have is the ability to go online and go clothing shopping, that's not as exciting. That doesn't give you the adrenaline rush. And maybe that makes it a little easier to say, well, let me get up and go to the only place I can go. 
let me touch the only things that are touchable. Let me look at the only things that are viewable. And maybe that can have the um, unexpected positive externality of making people be more inclined to look at their own things, go shopping at home. Mm. Let's move on to another Taco Bottle I have here. Mm. Jordan, put up a picture. This is in response to two episodes ago. We did an episode called Clutter Core. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And then Professor Sean, he posted a video that Danny Unknown put together. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> had nothing to do with him. <laughs> Danny put together this beautiful video mm-hmm. on TikTok mm-hmm. and Instagram. We put it up everywhere. And within the first day, it was approaching half a million views uh, across all the platforms. And oh, all wow. these people are outraged at what I said. Okay. And so I want to be really clear. I think the reason people are outraged because it's a one-minute clip out of a much larger conversation. Thankfully, it brought a lot of people into the conversation. Mm. And when I showed this picture that's on your screen right now, here's what I said. This is not a design trend. This is a mental illness. Mm. If you're just listening to the audio version, this is a picture of clutter core. It's just a woman sitting among a bunch of clutter. It Mm. is a picture of hoarding. Mm. And people say, well, how dare you say this is a mental illness? Why why do you think that it's a mental illness? I said, well, it's not about my opinion. My opinion doesn't matter at all. Mm -hmm. But hoarding has been considered a mental illness for decades now. And that's not according to me. That's according to the Mayo Clinic, to NHS, to the Cleveland Clinic, and several other experts. Now, I'm not going to just defer to the experts for everything, Mm. but I also want to be clear about something. I don't think a mental illness is a bad thing. Hoarding, whether you're a stage one hoarder, stage three hoarder, stage five hoarder. Ryan and I were stage two, three hoarders back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy to think that anyway, because I didn't feel like a hoarder. Right. You know? Yeah. And so hoarding is, uh, according to many experts, on the OCD spectrum. Mm. Now, I'm a person who has OCD, has been diagnosed with OCD, has had it since I was about age six. And it doesn't manifest in some of the ways where you have to turn doorknobs a bunch of times. But I do a lot of things that are OCD-esque. I mm. count steps. I count uh, stairs. I, I do a lot of counting of things. <laughs> and I obsess a lot. I'm much more obsessive than I am compulsive. And so that is considered to be a mental illness. Mm. And that's not to say that I think it's a bad thing. Mm. This is a problem. Clutter core is a problem merely because it is reframing something that is getting in the way and saying that it is a good thing. It's holding on to the things that make us miserable and saying this is beneficial to you. Mm. Now, if you actually enjoy whatever things you have in your space, I don't want you to get rid of any of it. I'm not in the business of trying to convince you of anything. The problem that we have is when we say, hey, I have this problem. Instead of looking at the problem, addressing the problem, wondering the why behind that problem, the why behind the clinging, I'm going to proudly display my clinging, pretend it is not a problem. Mm. And that's when we get confused. So, no, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad thing. But I think that if it gets in the way, telling yourself a story that it doesn't get in the way doesn't keep it from getting in the way. Yeah. 
All right, Angel's Advocate question. (laughs) If having a mental illness is not a bad thing, and if, let's say, hoarding is a mental illness, what does it add to the conversation to label it as such? Mm. Yeah, good question. We had a question earlier about ADHD. Mm -hmm. And the thing I didn't have the time to say in the moment, we can talk about it now, is you're right. Adding a label to a thing can be helpful because it limits it, right? And it allows you to talk about it, Mm -hmm. right? And so labels, everything is a label. I'm drinking from this coffee mug. That's a label, right? But as soon as you label something, it also puts it in a box that you cease to see it. Anthony DeMello says, as soon as you you give the bird a name, you cease to see it, right? Mm. And so you're right in, in the respect that if I label it a mental illness, maybe we actually cease to see it. But being that we're on a podcast, I want to talk about things the way they are. I don't want to pull any punches and I don't want to soften it in a way that pretends that it isn't. I don't, I don't want to say that it's not a mental illness and that it's okay for you to hold on to all the stuff that is making you miserable. It's fine with me if you do. I don't care if you do, right? No, I, I got you on that. Like, I'm not, I'm not thinking that you should be pretentious and PC, but like even when you say I'm not going to pull any punches, is it a punch then? Mm. Because you're like, like on one end, it sounds like, hey, like having a mental illness is not a bad thing. Hey, man, if that's what you're doing, that's a mental illness. Now, look, it's okay if that's what you want to do, mm. but it's a mental illness. Like it, it, it sounds like it's a little bit of both. It sounds like there's something that calling it a mental illness is adding to the discussion, and I'm, I'm trying to get at what that is. I, I think it is, Josh, trying to shake the listener a little bit, mm-hmm. or the viewer. Um, kind of like say, what Kapil says, it doesn't really matter, but at the same time, it's pathetic. I'm like, wait! <laughs> <laughs> if it doesn't matter, it can't be pathetic. Yeah. It's just meaningless. But anyway. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, everything, first off, um, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, oxymoronic things about you know nothing is or uh, is is only is or is only isn't <laughs> like it isn't it isn't at the same time so mental disorder or mental illness i should say um mm. it's not a bad thing it's not a good thing um i think when josh says mental disorder what it does is it makes the the whoever you know the the viewer um look at that and say oh wow like mental disorder is something that is going on in the mind that if we don't get control of, it will be out of control and our life will be uh, worse off if, if that disorder gets out of, out of hand. So, um, yeah, I mean, mental disorder is never a positive thing. It certainly um, is, is a pejorative statement. But, you know, Josh isn't trying to shame anyone. Yeah, it's not we, pejor- we, I, that's yeah. I disagree. It's not pejorative at all. It's a statement. <clears throat> My well, father was schizophrenic. He had a mental illness. I'm not yeah. saying that pejoratively. Yeah. I'm stating it as a matter of fact. Hoarding is a mental illness. Now, mm. we can pretend that it's not. We can celebrate hoarding, but it's still a mental illness. Yeah. And until we understand that consumerism, so am I pulling punches? No, I'm not going to pull punches. Am I punching? Yes, I'm punching at consumerism. Consumerism Mm. is the ideology that buying things is going to make you a whole happy person. No, it's not. Our society has become pathological. We are 
a mentally ill society. Yeah. We think that we can consume our way to happiness, mm. life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How's that working out for you? Mm-hmm. It's making you miserable. And if you're miserable, heaping more stuff onto it, that is the definition of insanity. It is a mental illness. It's a huge problem in our society. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to sugarcoat it anymore. If you're happy with your stuff, be happy with your stuff. But if the stuff is making you miserable, I wouldn't cling to it and celebrate it and say, look at me, look how much stuff I own. Oh, by the way, it's it's kind of making me miserable. Yeah. And yeah. that's the that's the challenge of highlight clip culture, which we are part of, because even in the the discussion on Clutter Core, you and I had a disagreement about whether or not this is hoarding. And, and I was kind of making a case that maybe it's a way of like uh, transforming what would otherwise be hoarding into a form of creative uh, expression. And, and even during that segment, you talked about how like, look, if you find joy in it and you're at peace with it and you're getting all into the artistic component of it, then that's fine. Mm-hmm. But, but, but that's not what you were addressing. And so it's like, but yeah, you don't get that part of the discussion where you're acknowledging those sorts of things and making those nuanced points when you say, let's, let, let's find a good 30 second component for engagement or whatever. You yeah. know, and you know what's funny, by the way, you said that had like half a million views on the first day. It's so fascinating that a clip that made a lot of people mad and say, I'm angry with you. I don't like this mm. show anymore. That it was like better for the show mm. than the stuff that people say they like. And it's just fascinating, right? It, we, we wonder why celebrity culture isn't so incentivized to manufacture controversy because even though we complain about it, we give far more energy to the stuff that we hate in the form of complaints than we do do to the stuff we say we love in the form of celebration. Mm. You know, it's just an interesting thing. No, it really is interesting. I mean, we are addicted to rage. Like that is, um, what what do you call it, rage porn? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we are addicted to it. So when when we see something that makes us mad, we look at it, we comment, the algorithm says, oh, this is getting attention. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to see if this post can get any more attention and then it starts to take off with the algorithm. But it's, it is based off of this fact that we are all miserable looking at this thing, but that misery keeps us tuned in, which is, it is a very, it is a very strange thing. Yeah. I wasn't saying that mental illness is a pejorative term. I'm saying people take it pejoratively. Yes. Yeah, and, absolutely. <clears throat> they do. And I think that was the problem. My intention yes, was not to exactly. outrage anyone. Mm-hmm. I was simply stating a truth, a fact, and Whatever you extrapolate from that tells me a lot more about you. However, what I am grateful for, as TK said, is it better for the show? In some instances, I would say no, because I'm not out there to get publicity and to make people outrage. However, it did bring a certain number of people, what percentage of people, 10%, 15% of people to the longer form version of the show. And they start listening to it and say, oh yeah, there is a bunch of nuance here beyond the TikTok clip itself. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, we all have, well, at least I do. I got a mental illness. You know, it's like, I, I think you pointed it out earlier, our society as a whole has a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. And, it's not a matter of like trying to pretend that I don't have a I don't have a mental illness and I'm fine and or I've got past it. It's it's about living with it and managing it. And when I see that picture, you know, there's no managing going on right there. Yeah. That's or very little managing. I Actually, should say. maybe the problem is the managing. Maybe, yeah. And what I mean by that is like when we try to manage our problems, it's like organizing our stuff. 
oh yeah, I'll manage it. Mm. But how's that really working out? It's like finding balance, right? Yeah. No one is actually looking for balance because when they find it, they cease looking for it. When you ride a bike, you're not trying to balance until you become off balance. When someone asks a question about work-life balance, what they're really saying is my life is out of balance, right? Mm -hmm. Because as soon as you have found balance, the the word, the, the scientific word for it is homeostasis, right? As soon as we, our body has experienced homeostasis, it means we're free of disease, of dysfunction. And as soon as we're there, we're balanced. Mm. So balance is actually the, the pre-existing state. We just do a bunch of things, including consuming beyond our means, consuming things we don't need that knock us out of balance. And that's when we go seek the balance that we already had in the first place. Mm. Yeah. By the way, on the picture, that's probably or possibly a model. And so we don't know anything about that person and nothing that we're talking about has anything to do with that person. Amongst some of the anger was concern about the person in the picture. Yeah. yeah. Mm. I, I love what you said about we're not trying to convince anyone of anything. We don't care if you hold on to your stuff. This isn't about us trying to talk people out of things. It's a matter of like Josh and I, we found a problem with this. Here's some solutions we came up with that really helped us find that, you know, regain that balance. And maybe it'll work for you and maybe not. And that's okay. But we're, I, I, this is like the third time we've said it on this podcast. We're not trying to guilt and shame anyone about their possessions. Let's move on to TK's Tweet of the Week. Alabama's <laughs> <laughs> sleeping on the couch over That's there. Right. <laughs> this week's tweet of the week is protect your light brought to you by Oasis. I shouldn't say brought to you by because that sounds like it does sound like an advertisement. Like an advertisement. Yeah. That's messed up, man. That's how, a perfectly good phrase. How much are they paying phrase. you to read this tweet? Yeah, TK, how much are they paying you? <laughs> perfectly good phrase that's been hijacked <clears throat> by the advertising industry. All right, this tweet of the week. Three ETH. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we got to do a Bitcoin episode at some point because TK knows so much about Bitcoin and that Does whole he world. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, dude. Yeah, we should do I love like that a world. cryptocurrency. Yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, we get asked about it all the time. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Uh, anyway, yeah. Oasis of Serenity has a tweet. What does she have to say? Oasis of Serenity at Year of the Poets. This message keeps coming through. You are here to better humanity and your light will reveal what many would otherwise not see on their own. It's important that the company you keep amplifies this light and not take from it. Mm. I love this tweet except one word. Mm. Oh, <laughs> I, I, I have a guess, but yeah, I'm yeah, not going to guess. Let's guess which word it is. That's a I'm, great idea. I'm just going to say, I knew it as soon as you say whatever you You guess say. the word, and then if it's right, it's right. But let me read this, and then... I'll share with Ryan. Okay, let's do it. All right, they're, right now they are... To uh, better. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and so, because I think this is part of our disease, mm. the disease of self-improvement, of betterment. Uh, it's like a cult of sorts. Like, I need to constantly grow, 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 grow. That's what cancer does. Yeah. And growth for the sake of growth is not some sort of virtue to behold, to hold up in, in the highest light. Yeah. However, I, I do recognize that there is a form, there is a time when we want to get better. And it's whenever mm -hmm. we're in, the analogy I, I enjoy the most is when we're in a crater. Mm. When I had half a million dollars worth of debt, mm. I was in a deep financial crater. 
And I needed to better my life, not to better me as a person, but to simply get out of the mess I had already made. And when I was morbidly obese, you know, I weighed 80, 90 pounds more than I weigh now. I weighed 240 pounds when I was 12 years old. All I needed to do was undo the mess I had made in the first place. So betterment in this sense only makes sense to me when it's about subtracting the things that I have heaped onto my life, whether it's the excess calories, the excess Mm. debt, the excess obligations, the excess toxic relationships. But I love the second part of this tweet, which is, man, who you surround yourself with will determine whether or not you can get yourself out of that crater. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I mean, I get the essence of what they're saying. Um, I do have an issue with, or yeah, yeah, an issue with the word better as well, because it assumes that humanity is, something's wrong with it right now as it sits. Also, by this, by the better logic of like actually going with like making something better, then, you know, a thousand years ago, you could say, well, man, they were, were a lot better than how they were a thousand years ago. But I mean, to make a, a yeah, just to make a blanket statement, it's a little, um, yeah, but I do get the essence of what they're saying. Because it is, it is about adding, adding to society or adding to the world in the sense of like doing something meaningful for, for the world. And I, you know, that's the essence, I think, what she means by better. Yeah. Uh, so, oh man, I, I, I was hoping to spend most of my time on the beauty of surrounding yourself with company that amplifies the light. <laughs> Too bad, I had, TK. I had no idea that this, that bettering humanity would be <laughs> such a controversial thing. So I'm throwing down the gauntlet and I am the defense attorney for bettering humanity. I believe in it. Mm. I, I think, I think for any given activity or enterprise, there's a healthy way to go about it and there's an unhealthy way to go about it. Mm. And we could, in theory, dismiss anything. Exercise, hanging out with people if we exclusively focus on the unhealthy approaches to it. Because there's an unhealthy approach to everything. There's Mm -hmm. an unhealthy approach to going to bed at night. Mm -hmm. There's an unhealthy approach to having sex. There's an unhealthy approach to hanging out with your friends. You can do anything in a way that is self-destructing. That doesn't mean there isn't a healthy approach to it. And when I think of bettering humanity, absolutely there is such a thing Hmm. as a compulsive addiction to self-improvement. There are some people who torture themselves when all they need to do is accept themselves for who they are and love themselves. Absolutely, that is a real thing. And at the same time, there is a part of us that is always growing. There is a non-cancerous part of us that is always growing. You know, I got to shave my head every three to four days because this hair just keeps growing. That hair isn't cancerous. That hair isn't doing something that is Mm -hmm. anti-life. That's a beautiful expression of my humanity too. That's why I got to shave it every three days because that Mm. shadow is going to come up (laughs) and I'll have an afro if I'm not careful, right? Mm. So there is a healthy thing such as continuing to grow. But I agree with you that growth for growth's sake is one thing, Mm -hmm. but there is something to be said about this idea. You know, Socrates saw education, for instance, as the process of drawing out or pulling out that aspect of people that is already perfect, already divine. One could say there is a divine impulse that causes us to strive towards perfection. What if we truly were created to be perfect, even if we never get there in this lifetime? Would the desire for growth be unhealthy then? Mm. Maybe the attitudes we have about ourselves when we fail could be unhealthy, but I see nothing wrong with always having something that you want to improve or work on as long as you're approaching it in a way that's playful, that's healthy, that 
doesn't work against self-love and self-respect. I'm down with bettering humanity. Yeah. I do think we're all here to better humanity. And mm. even if we tell people, stop reading all those self-help books and just relax, you're bettering them. They're better off by mm. taking that advice. Mm. So uh, this thinking, thinking about bettering humanity makes me want to ask the question, what is wrong with humanity? Mm. Like what, what is so wrong with it that we have to constantly trying, be trying to better it? That's, Yeah. I feel like yeah, we, we could do a whole that. episode on just betterment alone. Yeah. <laughs> mm. I, I would say what's wrong with the idea that something could be wrong with us. Yeah. I, I get it, man. So many people probably grew up in a Catholic school where maybe they got caught committing a sin and, and, and a nun like slapped their hand with a ruler and was merciless towards them or something like that. Mm-hmm. I get it, man. A lot of people have been traumatized by the idea that there is something wrong with you. And I think what we've done is we've shifted to the opposite extreme of saying we can never be wrong about anything. But mm-hmm. look around the world, whatever language we want to use to describe it. We, okay, we don't have to use for the sake of the debate the word wrong or the word sin, but look around. People are addicted to things mm-hmm. that they don't want to be addicted to. People are depressed by things they don't want to be depressed by. And we don't have to use my standard or your standard. We can let people talk about their own lives and they will tell you, I'm empty, yeah. I'm addicted. I'm lonely and I'm suffering. Call it whatever word you want. But what's happening is there's the human heart crying out for something that is missing. And even Mm. if the answer is nothing is missing, Mm. you just need to accept the fact that you're already whole. Well, the knowledge of that was missing until you gave it to them. Yeah. You know, I think the trap that people get caught in, though, is like they're asking, how can I better humanity? And like that could be a trap because some people, whatever they are doing in life, don't feel like they are bettering humanity. So now they feel like, you know, a a piece of crap because I'm not doing anything to better humanity. But it's like some people, it's okay that you're not bettering humanity. Like sometimes you just need to better yourself. Like focus on on that and maybe you'll find a way to better humanity in the future. Um, But you're right. There's nothing, it is and it isn't. It's great to want to better humanity. It's awful to put that weight on your shoulders and tell yourself that uh, you're a waste of space if you're not bettering humanity. Man, TK, you um, are so (laughs) eloquent in your deep and profound wrongness. (laughs) (laughs) We should have a whole episode on that, though. I think that's That's good. I think that's worth really digging into because there's a lot there. Like, do better. Yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We've got obsolete objects, a little segment we do. (laughs) We do obsolete objects, impulse purchases. If you got any for us, you can email us, podcast at theminimalists.com. Danny Unknown has an obsolete object for us. Tyler, he wrote in, what did he say, Alabama? He said, hi, y'all. Just had a quick thought for an obsolete object, which for me is a drawer organizer. We moved a while ago and I mm. haven't gotten one yet. Although it is a little messy without one, I'm not sure how much value it really adds to my life. Thanks for always having a great podcast. Tyler. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you know what? This is where I profoundly disagree with Tyler. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, if there's one item that seems to just emanate joy from itself, not even within me, there's just joy in the item. (laughs) It's my drawer organizers. (laughs) (laughs) I got them. I got them from a company I think called Salt by Sabrina, not an advertisement. Mm. Um, I don't know. Use promo code, butt plug. Uh, (laughs) I just have to do this to prove we're not doing advertisements. No, we're going to have promo codes that actually add 10% to the price. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Genius. And they would give that 10% to us. Yeah, exactly. And we buy Ferraris. That's right. Minimalist Ferraris. Tyler, 
I say bravo. And by the way, your drawer looks great. Mm-hmm. And it, really it seems to me that you don't need a drawer organizer. For me, all the drawers in our kitchen, because I knew that like this is where we're going to stay for a while. Mm. I wanted them to be organized. So, and I organize it even based on use. Like I know the spatula is going to be to the right of the oven because Bex and I are both right-handed. Mm. And so I want it to be to the right. And then to the left, I have the spices where I can grab. The, and so I have it planned out ideally for us. Mm. It makes sense to me. And part of that is a drawer organizer, but that is the perfect thing. This is the spirit of this segment. Mm-hmm. Something that works really well for me, even as one of the titular minimalists, mm-hmm. may be obsolete for Tyler. And so you're listening to this just because I get value from something or TK gets value from something, Ryan gets value from something. It doesn't mean that you too will get value from it. It's the reason, that's the biggest reason that I don't want to do advertisements is because I can't possibly say you're definitely going to enjoy this sports gambling website or whatever. Right. No. Mm. I don't know if you're going to enjoy it. And so Tyler asked himself this question and it seems like it's obsolete to him. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I I appreciate Tyler and I appreciate you. I appreciate the perspective that you two formed on your own. And that's Mm -hmm. really what it's about. Yeah. Yeah. That's it, man. That stands. We got a sucky advertisement. Speaking of ads... So we do this little segment called Sucky Ads where we talk about an ad that really sucks. And this might be the most mm, dangerous. Yeah, hmm. It's from a tweet. We'll put a link to the tweet. Uh, Ethan Mollick said, the scale of the disaster caused by TV smoking ads is mind-blowing. Smoking-related TV ads stole about 110 million years from people's lives in the United States alone. And there's a chart in this tweet. You'll have to check out the tweet itself. This paper estimates that TV ads addicted 11 million people and the average smoker died 10 years before non-smokers. Mm. So you do the quick math there. 110 million years lost. We've taken away the lives of people mm. through these advertisements. Now, this almost seems like a parodic example because you can't even advertise for cigarettes in most places anymore. Mm -hmm. It's been regulated out of existence. Now, I don't know that that's the right answer either. Yeah. But what I can tell you is that advertisements suck. And when I say advertisements suck, this is what I'm referring to. I'm not referring to Jeff or Susie in their cubicle who are trying to find a, a way to um, get their nonprofit out into the world by putting Facebook ads up, right? Right. I didn't say every single advertisement ever sucks. Mm-hmm. I mean, I prefer they weren't there, mm-hmm. but like this is appreciably different from that. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> anytime an ad is stealing something from you, I, yeah, it's definitely pernicious. And with this, it's it's life. It's a, it's lifespan. Um, also, health span too. Yeah, health yeah. span. Because yeah. those last few years of the life that is taken, you remember my mom was dying. Mm-hmm. She was in terrible agony, pain, suffering from lung cancer. She started smoking when she was sixteen. Yeah, she died when she was sixty-five. And those last few years of her life, it was it was agony. And of course, she would still be alive right now. 
Mm. If she wasn't a smoker, almost certainly, unless something yeah. else, you know, sudden took her life. But yeah. she would still be alive right now if it weren't for smoking. Now, yeah. whether or not that was based on an ad, it was based on a culture, it's all part of the same stew here. Mm. Mm. Yeah, makes- TK, go ahead and defend the smoking ads. <laughs> <laughs> Angel's advocate. <laughs> it's cool though, guys. Did you guys see James Dean? You see how cool he was? I just think you're not trying the right cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but how cool was your mom, Josh? Uh, right. <laughs> I, I just want to hear another. Pretty, she I just was pretty cool. Another mi- minute of like AI TK debating this issue. <laughs> oh shoot. <laughs> You guys seen James Dean? <laughs> oh. oh, man. So every week on the podcast, we do a photo home tour here on the private podcast. Just for our video podcast subscribers, we send out the photo to you the week before, the Friday before, so you can take a look at it. <clears throat> However, I'll do my best to describe this. If you're just listening to the audio version, that's great as well. So this is the 25th home tour we've been doing in this series each week. And this one, I think, is going to shock our listeners. So <laughs> we, we got to come up with a really clickbaity title. You'll never believe what this one minimalist owns. <laughs> Have a skeleton in the closet, a literal skeleton. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's what I'll say. So a few months ago on our YouTube channel, we put up this video where I talked about a few things that I now live without. Home, internet, and mm-hmm. television were two of those things. Mm-hmm. And I've lived without, I haven't owned a television in 12 years, but Bex, Ella, and I purchased our first TV. Congratulations. In in 12 years. (laughs) We either congratulations or throw tomatoes at me. I I don't know which. And I want to talk about this because there's an evolution that happened here. Mm -hmm. And I want to be clear about something. If I live by myself, and I don't think it's morally right or wrong to own a TV, obviously, But if I just live by myself 100% of the time, there's no way I would have home internet or have a TV at home. Mm -hmm. Well, why is that? Because for me alone, when I'm by myself, it's too tempting and it gets in the way of things I would know I would rather be doing. Mm -hmm. Reading, writing, exercising, being the big three for me. Mm -hmm. It gets in the way of that. However, I need to also recognize that my own preferences... I can't map them on to everyone else in my household like a corrections officer. Mm. Here's how we're living, no matter what. Now, of course, we can have non-negotiables in a home, right? Mm -hmm. I I, I couldn't tolerate if Beck started smoking in the house, or especially if Ella started smoking. (laughs) (laughs) Ella, you're nine. What are you doing? Ella, why do you look so cool? (laughs) (laughs) I saw it on a commercial. Um, So what we decided recently was, hey, we want a TV. Well, really, Bex and Ella want a TV, Mm -hmm. and I can tolerate it. And truth be told, I too, with the right boundaries, Mm -hmm. can get value from owning a TV. So what you see right here is a picture of our living room. Now, the number one way that I get value from our TV now is 98% of the time that we use this TV I use it to project art. Mm. And so we don't put artwork on the walls generally, but I do have art on the TV. Mm. And so I will find these YouTube videos. In fact, we'll put a link to this particular video in the show notes over at theminimalists.com slash podcast for this episode. And 
what I do is I have art on the wall and it just changes regularly. And now you might be looking at this picture and saying, how does he afford a Clara Peters painting? <laughs> She's a 17th century Dutch painter, obviously. Yes. Clearly. Ryan knew that, but for TK's benefit. Right, right, right. <laughs> I didn't have to buy her art. It's simply there on my wall and it changes out every five minutes. This is how I use the TV 98% of the time. It doesn't mean I'm better for doing it that way, but this is how I personally get value from it because I think TVs are ugly, mm. especially there's there on the wall, even though we have it situated there and we, we have it so there are no wires showing or anything. So it's aesthetically okay, mm-hmm. but putting art on it actually makes the whole living room aesthetically pleasing. So here's what I do now. Mm. Every morning I wake up, I'll do the ice bath and then I'll get a cup of coffee and I'll go sit on the couch and read and I'll turn on the TV and have the art right there. And I'll put Zen Garden playlist playing in the background. And I will read with the art on the wall. And now I'm not watching TV. I'm not bothered by the TV. In fact, the TV is enhancing that experience. Mm. A couple other boundaries that really help me because I have trouble with impulse control. Mm. Here's one boundary. I don't have a TV in my bedroom. Mm-hmm. I don't have a TV anywhere else in the house that's going to distract me. The bedroom for me is meant for two things, neither of which involve a remote control. Although now that I think about it, that's a, that's a different thing. We'll set that aside. Also, I have some rules around watching the TV. We always schedule in advance, so we don't watch the TV haphazardly or mm. impromptu. Hey, would you like to watch something tomorrow night? Great. Mm. We'll put it on the calendar. And if we're going to binge watch something, here's another boundary that I have. This works for me. May or, not, may or may not work for you. We never binge more than two episodes. Mm. That's binging for us, too. Mm. So I never watch two days in a row as well. So if we binge something, then I'm not going to watch something tomorrow. And then we'll schedule maybe something for the next day if we want to schedule it there. But that way, Mm. I'm making sure the viewing doesn't get in the way of the things that I know are more meaningful to me. Even though the TV might be more compelling for me in the moment, I recognize that that impulse... I have to stave off. I think we have a second picture here Mm. as well. So it's just a closer up um, image here. So uh, next week on the private podcast, we're going to talk about some of the decorative art that we display throughout the home on the, the photo home tour. And a lot of the books we have are mostly for display. They look good, but also... I can pull one out with Ella and we'll start looking at some of the pictures, a lot of picture books that will start discussing different architecture and it spurs these conversations. And that's really, whether it's a television or it's a book or a piece of artwork, if it spurs a conversation with someone else, that's the last boundary I have. Don't watch it alone. Mm. I don't watch TV by myself Mm. because what'll happen is 12 hours later, I'll look up and be like, oh, what did I do? (laughs) Where did all this drool come from? (laughs) That came from my mouth. I remember remember, uh, Mariah and I, like the craziest binge we ever did is we were like going out of town and on like House of Cards had just come out. So we like binged it in a day or two. But it was like, there was at the end of it, there was no, and there was less enjoyment than there was pleasure. It was like, I felt exactly like, like what you just said. Oh my God, what have we done? You almost felt yeah. obligated to finish it. Yes. As opposed to, I get to finish this. It was, it was like, I have to watch this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I gotta, we, we gotta watch yeah. the next episode. We gotta get through it. 
Yeah. What, what I love about about your discipline here is that it stems from being really in tune with your own weaknesses. Why are you so disciplined about TV watching? Because you know yourself and you know how easy it is for you to go into a space where you consume television programs for 12 hours. And I think that's mm-hmm. important to highlight because a lot of times when we see people that are really disciplined and exercise a lot of self-control, we, we're so impressed by it that we tend to put them on a pedestal and treat them as like, wow, you're, you're a saint, you're, you're an icon, you're, you're just at another level. And it's like, well, actually, I might be struggling with this more than you, which is why I might need the constraints and the boundaries, you know? Yeah. That's such a good point. Uh, yeah. yeah. I love the idea of the art on the TV because it makes me think about the digital picture frame. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have, you know, the pictures scrolling through and it actually creates some conversation. Oh, is that, yeah. is that you surfing? Like, tell me about, you know, tell me about wh- where you are right here in this picture. And it's the same thing with the art. Like, that's a, that's a great idea, man. And you so, know, one of, one of the thing with the art is I'll put that on and it revolves every five minutes. So mm-hmm. the channel I, I often watch is a YouTube channel called Art Deco. Even though it's not Art Deco, it's like a bunch of like Renaissance paintings or it'll be a theme, pastels, Mm. or it'll be all uh, Van Gogh paintings for the day. But what will happen is Ella will come out in the living room in the morning and she'll just sit on the couch and she'll start looking at the TV because kids are especially compelled by glowing screens. And then she starts asking questions about the art. Who painted that? And then we'll start looking up Wikipedia for Van Gogh or for Rousseau and now all of a sudden she's learning, but not in a forceful way. Yeah. Ella, sit down. I'm going to teach you about Van Gogh. She'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but when she sees it up there, she says, tell me more. Yeah. And it opens up a whole new avenue for conversation. By the way, TV watching. Do you do uh, TV watching ever at dinner time, or is it off limits? For no, dinner? no, we, we don't. No planning ahead either, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We, we, for us, that's a boundary. Okay. Yeah. And, and we also don't eat on the couch either. So. Yep. Uh, those are just two different boundaries. And that's mainly because I don't want Ella to drop a bunch of stuff on our rug. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. For our added value segment this week, I want to, I got something a little bit different. Danny, if you wouldn't mind, I have on top of my bag over there in the bench, I have two masks. So I told Ryan about this. Actually, one of them is not a mask. So my added value this week is something called sleep phones. Now, we did a podcast episode with Jack Delaccio. He's the founder of Essentia Mattress. And mm-hmm. we talked about a bunch of different sleep tips and things that have helped improve our sleep because we had fallen into a deficit. We never slept as well as we did when we were kids. Yeah. Ella sleeps so well somehow still. She sleeps 10, 11 hours a night, many nights. Thank you, sir. Appreciate yeah. that. I'm so jealous of, yeah, yeah. kids getting their good sleep. Her yeah. ability. Yeah. And so we talked about things like grounding or having a sound machine or my personal favorite. I don't ever sleep without my sleep master sleep mask. I'll put mm. a link to this in the show notes. I don't care if you have one, but here, I'll just do this real quick. Yeah. Here, just put on this blindfold, Josh. TK, <laughs> I can do this episode with blindfolded. Shades of Josh. <laughs> 50 Shades of Josh. <laughs> you look right. like, you look so like, you where's look like, my, um... <laughs> Oh my God, you you look like uh, the worst superhero. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Blue Zorro. Yeah, right. All right, so 
<clears throat> this sleep mask I use all the time. I travel with it. Uh, in fact, I think I've owned more of these because mm. there's one in my travel bag. There's one in my dresser. There's one in my pants pocket. <laughs> Wherever I need one of these, I have. Yeah. But this sleep mask is wonderful. That's not my added value today. Um, but on that episode, we talked about a bunch of things that help sleep, right? Mm-hmm. And since then, I've acquired one other thing that really helps me. Now, whether or not it would help you, I don't know. This is called... Uh, this is from a company called Sleep Phones. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. Now, I get the wired version. They have a Bluetooth version as well. I get paranoid about wearing Bluetooth all night and the uh, the radiation from Bluetooth, et cetera. Mm. I just don't know whether or not there's a negative effect from that. And remember, we had Ben Greenfield on the podcast, and he's like, I, I wouldn't wear it. And he's yeah. the one who actually recommended this to me. I was talking to him about it. And so I use the wired version. So I put my phone in airplane mode. And these sleep phones, they're literally just headphones. So I'll put mm. it on real quick. Now mm-hmm. I'll look really cool. Oh so my hold goodness. On. How cool do I look, Jordan? <laughs> Extra cool. Move your, your beautiful <laughs> noggin, Jordan. There we go. Oh, Dude. wow. I look great. These are great, man. Cause what it- am I, Alex Caruso? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> All no, right. It's so, great because it doesn't fall off your head. It doesn't fall off my head. Yeah. And the so the here the earphones if you're if you're listening I'll explain it so this is a headband with earphones in it and you can lay on top of it and you can sleep on top of these and you could play podcasts music mm. whatever you want to play but playing in the background right now is the 12 hours of sound therapy that I use. It's just a YouTube video that I've downloaded so Mm. I can keep my phone in airplane mode. The Wi-Fi in our house is turned off. The uh, Bluetooth on my phone is turned off. The radio signal on my phone is turned off. And it just functions as a Walkman, basically. And I plug this right into my phone. And I. here's the thing. It doesn't help me go to sleep. It helps me remain steadily asleep all Mm. night long. That music you hear in the background right now, it just plays all night. And as soon as I hear it now, I associate it with sleep. And it's helped me stay asleep all night ever since I've had these things. Mm. That's awesome, man. Yeah, plus I look really cool. You do look really cool. (laughs) Well, I used to have have um, some earmuffs when I went snowboarding that had speakers on them. But like, I, they don't really, the ones I had, they don't make them anymore. But a long story short, like I could totally use those for snowboarding. I could find a dual purpose for those. <laughs> now, yeah. Josh, does it make a big difference if you, if it's earphones or not? Like what if you just had it playing through like a speaker with no earphones? Would that not work for you? It, it wouldn't work for me for two reasons is, you know, I'm with someone else at night. And so uh, I think she would be bothered by that. But also um, I find this is much more intimate. It's like, it's, playing in my head. Mm. Now, what'll happen is the the song that's playing in the background right now, or the, the sounds, rather, the healing sounds that are playing in the background, I will, when Bex and I get into bed, I will put it on speaker first, and it will just play through that for 10, 15 minutes as we're winding down, and then I'll plug into it on my own. And I feel like it, it almost like it blankets my brain in these healing sounds. Yeah. And it helps me stay asleep throughout the night. My biggest mm. problem was I would often wake up at 2 a.m., 2.30 a.m. and just be wide awake and then I was up for the day. Mm. This allows me to continue to stay asleep longer, get the sleep that I need without sacrificing any of the um, you know, sleep quality as well. Yeah. So it's not bothering me. In fact, if anything, it 
it keeps me in that deep sleep much longer. Yeah. And I track my sleep too with an aura ring. And I can tell you since, since I got this, my sleep has improved. Now, they prioritize longevity, uh, length of sleep. Mm. And so I'm sleeping longer with this, which is a, a, a net benefit for me. And I think it probably certainly does. It almost certainly uh, helps with healing if you have some sort of chronic illness or something like that as well. Mm. You know, sleep obviously is, a, is the most restorative mm. state. And it certainly helps out with that. We'll yeah. put a link to that in the show notes. Also, the sleep, mine's real dirty, the sleep master mask. I need to wash this one. But uh, all right, I'll do the rest of this podcast blindfolded. Actually, no, I need to read the credits. <laughs> hey, what does the mask do for you? What does the mask, it makes, I mean, just makes it dark? Is that why it's yeah, dark? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so, a sleep mask. You can, you can try it on. Does try it, it on. See how dark it is in here. Yeah, it makes, it makes. Oh, huge. If you haven't worn a sleep mask before, TK, the first night that you wear it, you will just, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looks great, All right, man. Now put Looks an apple great. on his head. We'll shoot it off. <laughs> Dude. So, you know what, TK? I, I don't yeah, I don't know how you sleep when you're on the road, but having a an eye mask like that, a sleep mask like that when you're in a hotel and you've got the big bright lights of the city out there kind of, you know, peeking through and it yeah, it helps a lot. But not just that, but even like your alarm clock has enough light mm. that it disrupts your circadian rhythm. You can have if you're staying in a hotel room, there's some flashing light on the fire alarm that can provide enough light to disturb your circadian rhythm. And what I have found, especially since getting this, I got rid of my earplugs. I don't I don't need earplugs anymore because the music is playing in this. So mm. instead of doing earplugs, I I just use the the sleep phones because that's the other thing that the sleep phones do when I'm listening to the healing sounds. Mm -hmm. It drowns out any other potential sound that like if I hear Ella get up in the middle of the night to go use the bathroom, I used to actually hear that. Now I don't hear it anymore. If Bex mm. gets up in the middle of the night, as long as she's not rocking the bed crazy, I don't hear it yeah. at all. And mm. I stay asleep as a result. You know, I, I want the pair that comes with like the ninja kit, like the little stars, the little karate sticks. <laughs> that way, if I'm sleeping with it in a hotel room and somebody breaks in, I could just leave it on and just sit up in my bed and just start <laughs> flipping the karate sticks. Oh, man, that's, that's a good idea. Patent pending. <laughs> Welcome back to TK Coleman. Yeah. It's good to have you back, brother. Hey, man, it's good to be back. I love y'all, man. Miss y'all. Yeah. That Likewise. is our maximal episode for today. On behalf of Ryan Nicodemus, TK Coleman, Alabama, Podcast Sean, Jordan No More, Professor Sean, Social Jess, Danny Unknown, Host Production Peter, and the rest of our team. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. If you leave here today with just one message, let it be this. Love people and use things because the opposite never works. Thanks for listening, y'all. We'll see you next time. Peace. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'll be fine without it